Welcome back to another episode of Closing the Loop. My guest today is Sean Connell, Executive Vice President of Power at Lancium, a company which develops technologies and builds infrastructure to improve the economic efficiency of power production, balance and stabilize the power grid, and improve the viability of renewable energy resources. Sean has a wealth of experience in the energy markets, in particular in energy trading and risk management, and through his work at Lantium is becoming a leading expert in the rapid integration of Bitcoin mining and traditional energy infrastructure. We cover a lot of ground in this discussion, and as usual, I could have talked to Sean for another two hours at least about all the incredibly fascinating implications of these converging industries. For now, we'll have to save that for part two sometime in the future. Enjoy. All right. Well, Sean, let's uh, let's get rolling into this. I really appreciate you joining me for this discussion. I've got a ton of questions for you, or at least I feel I do. None written down, but a lot of questions in my head. And uh, I've been super impressed with your way of uh, articulating some of the intricacies of the confluence of Bitcoin mining, the energy grid, future energy infrastructure, all that stuff that I think a lot of us are starting to appreciate is going to be a very... Um, significant change to the way things currently operate. So thank you for, for coming on. And perhaps for people that aren't familiar with you, you could give a little introduction about yourself and what you're currently doing. Sure. So, so thanks for having me on the show. It's an honor to be invited. And yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity to come on your show and kind of uh, share some of this information. Um, so my background is that I come from an energy background and I started with a, a company in Alberta here when it was really at the start of deregulation when um, power markets were just going from, you know, fully regulated to deregulated. And it was really unknown space and just kind of the future wasn't known. And it was really neat because uh, it kind of resembles what it feels like in kind of like the Bitcoin space right now, where, you know, you think about kind of mining companies and trying to kind of figure out what is the, what is the model that's going to fit and what is the future going to be? And it's kind of, there's a lot of experimentation that's happening. And so that kind of, you know, resembled my past with kind of power markets where, there's a lot of experimentation on saying, you know, what are the things that we need to do to be able to kind of, you know, hedge our generation production that used to be, you know, a guaranteed customer, which was kind of like the, you know, air quotes, kind of the rate payer. And so the rate payer is now like a true competitive market where you need to figure out a way to kind of, how do you best monetize your generation? Um, so my background is I, I spent about 20 years working for a large power generation company, uh, got to go through a lot of the experimentation on what are the best ways to kind of manage these exposures. Um, but also in that journey was um, also involved in a lot of um, proprietary trading, which was <clears throat> essentially going into markets to kind of figure out what's happening in those markets. Um, you know, what would be kind of, um, you know, predicting kind of future price uh, outcomes as you start to add new generation, you bring on new load and really kind of understanding the fundamentals of power markets and really understanding how the electron flows between region and region. And, you know, what are those knock-on effects when you add, say, like a bunch of wind assets to one region? And what does that do to price in that region? What does it do to the next-door neighbor? But it's really a great lesson in just kind of understanding kind of the full fundamentals of power markets and kind of what happens when, you know, the, the supply changes or the demand changes and what that does to price. So um, along that journey is that, you know, uh, at the end of my career with the power generation was, you know, I kind of stumbled across this Bitcoin mining and it was super fascinating because... Um, you know, I came across it from a friend who gave me a call and said, hey, check this out. Um, he gave me the, the digital gold narrative and I, I really bought into that. Um, but then, you know, my question was, is like, how do you, how do you buy it, right? What are the, how, do you, how do you procure this Bitcoin? 
And it's like, you know, how do you, and he said, you can buy it for this or you can mine it for this. And he shared about the mining cost. And at the time, this was in 2017, and the mining cost was approximately, uh, it was a few hundred dollars, like two or three hundred dollars to mine. And the price of Bitcoin at the time was 10,000. And so coming from a background in, in, in power markets, is like there's a break here, right? There's like a, a price differential spread that needs to be corrected, right? At some point, right? You don't know when it is, but there's going to be a fight to kind of balance that. And so that was really where my obsession came into understanding Bitcoin was really understanding those kind of like fundamentals about kind of what's driving, you know, essentially the, the cost to make, which is a lot of the inputs, uh, you know, for electricity costs and kind of operations. But, you know, what is the price that they're willing to pay, which is, you know, essentially the Bitcoin price and then also kind of the, the amount of mining uh, hash rate that's competing on the market to essentially get that, uh, collect those gains. So uh, really, a, you know, quite the parallel from kind of power markets. And, you know, it's a little bit of a, uh, feels like kind of, uh, a little bit of a groundhog day, right? Where, you know, we're starting to kind of experience these things in, in, in Bitcoin markets that was kind of, that's happened before in the power market. So uh, I feel grateful for having that experience and be able to kind of overlay that. And of course, it's not going to be the exact same outcome, but they, they seem to rhyme quite, uh, quite, um, quite nicely with, with what's happened in power markets. Yeah. There's a bunch to unpack here, but perhaps you can indulge me. I think you'll, you know, I think you'll be able to probably speak to this better than most, but let's go before we go into Bitcoin mining, before we go into trading, you know, and the financialization of, you know, power markets, let's say, how does it all fun? Like, how is power generated and distributed on a very basic level? Like what's sure, going on yeah. beneath the, you know, yeah. below the surface there? Yeah. So essentially there's a, um, there's different types of entities that run power grids, right? And so there is a, there's two types. There's deregulated market and a regulated market. And for a regulated market is the, you know, traditional old school kind of monopoly, uh, vertically integrated where, you know, that, uh, utility would own the generation, they'd own the wires and they'd own the customers. And what they're doing is it's, you know, think about it as a, like a closed system, right? And they're going to generate the power that's going to flow. So pretend it's on an island, right? Uh, and it's Prince Edward Island in, in Canada. And essentially that what they're going to do is they're going to generate that power. They're going to, they own the wires and they're going to move that power to the customers. And that supply needs to always instantaneously match the demand. So you can't have like an overproduction of that, that generation. So they need to balance the grid and there's, you know, uh, it's called a, the frequency of the grid is 60 Hertz. And I've used analogies that, you know, think about that. It's like a heart rate, right? And so the, the heart rate of the grid on this kind of closed system on an island in North America needs to always be 60 Hertz. And if there's a difference in that kind of frequency, if it drops to say even 59.7, there can be some real challenges. And, you know, once you get down to like in the low 59s, equipment starts to, you know, disconnect from the grid to protect itself because it senses that there's something wrong. It'll shut down and disconnect itself from the grid, right? And so that example of the, of the heart rate is that in that drop that happened, you know, think about like a heart attack and the further it goes down, it's just kind of, you know, uh, it's perpetual where it'll continue a kind of a cascade and essentially you can have like a blackout, right? So that's an example of just kind of like that closed system but that's the example of the utility company kind of running the full kind of value chain of generation, the transmission lines, the distribution lines, and then the customers. So they own the, the full kind of you know, value chain. Um, and then you can think about the other uh, entity that would kind of run a grid is, is essentially like a, is a, 
uh, regional transmission operator or independent system operator that interchangeable. And two thirds of the United States is in these competitive markets, so deregulated markets, and they're run by a grid operator. So an example would be that if you're in New York, that grid operator is the New York ISO. And if you're in Texas, it's ERCOT. And so there's there's several different uh, of these ISO RTOs. Um, and so what they're doing is that they're essentially, they've got control over the dispatch of generation only, right? So they don't get to uh, control the, the wires or the customers. You know, this entity is what they're trying to do is they're trying to forecast what do I expect my generation to be available? So I need to kind of have some understanding of kind of what's what tools are in my pocket to be able to match this demand, right? So they're having to do some uh, forecasting about kind of what resources are available and that becomes harder with wind and solar. And the second part is that they need to forecast, you know, what is the expected demand going to be for the day, right? And so that way they can have the right amount of supply that's online to meet that demand instantaneously, right? And so the, the takeaway on this is that you know, the grid operator um, doesn't control load, right? They only control the supply. And what they're doing is that they're forecasting what is, this, what is the demand going to be so they can match that with the generation. And then they're bringing on additional resources to meet that demand instantaneously. And again, back to that heart, heart rate of the 60 hertz is that, you know, the way they know if they're doing this correct is that that frequency should stay at 60 hertz, so as demand goes up, they bring more generation online and stay at 60 hertz. Demand comes down, they bring generation offline, it stays at 60 hertz. When that frequency starts to kind of come out of balance, that means that there's an under-scheduling or over-scheduling of generation. So you need to instantaneously to, uh, to match these two parts. And it's a, it's a very daunting task, and it's, it's more onerous now with these grid operators because, you know, in the past, and, um, you know, so when I started, um, when deregulation happened, in North America in around 2000, um, the generation mix across all the United States was, was mostly fossil fuel based that would essentially have you know, some baseload generation, which would be kind of nuclear, um, you know, some hydro. And what they would do is they would, they would balance kind of the demand on the system with natural gas plants, right? So as the demand goes up, you dispatch more generation from natural gas. And as it comes down, you dispatch that offline. So since 2000, there's been this big transition that's been happening to, to renewables. And it's also part of, you know, when coal generation was essentially connecting to the grid, right? So the, the coal generation, the large fleet across the United States was around 1970, 1960. And so these power plants have a useful life of call it 40, 50 years. So there's, a, there's just a natural you know, progression of you know, the, the life of the asset is coming up, right? So that you can either try and extend the life of that asset or you can retire that asset. And then as we're making the transition of decarbonizing power grids, you know, the natural thing to happen on this was retiring these, these units that were you know, base load and also some of it was dispatchable. So now grid operators of today, you know, the resource mix that they have now is, you know, there's a large portfolio that would be you know, natural gas, there'd be some nuclear, but now as uh, more renewables are coming online, it's making up a larger and larger portion of the actual percent, the energy mix within that grid which makes it very challenging because now you need to, as mentioned, you need to forecast that demand, but you also need to make sure the resources you have available are going to match that. And if it's wind and solar and, you know, those things can change, you know, by the minute, you know, what are you going to do if, you know, there's a cloud that covers a big solar farm, you know, what generation do you have available that you can turn on quickly? So it's more of a challenging task now for that grid operator to meet that, you know, uh, supply side and also demand because, 
now they also have to worry about kind of what's available for, for their own generation. Yeah. Um, I'm going to ask a bunch of stupid questions throughout this uh, discussion. Just, I'm going to preface them all with that statement. But when you say, and I, so I have a lot to ask about that and I want to go back to a few points you, you mentioned, but just first, like when you say that heartbeat, that 60 Hertz, right? Like what, what does that mean? What are, what are, what are Hertz in relation to power generation and the grid? Yeah. Um, so 60 Hertz is essentially, so I'm not a, a I'm not a, a very technical on the engineering side. I often joke sure. about, uh, with, with folks is that, uh, you know, I was on a power trading desk for, for 20 years and, you know, I made it into a power plant, you know, twice. <laughs> and so like <laughs> I was, I was able to, as long as I have like the inputs and outputs, you can really kind of, you know, uh, make some really good decisions about kind of how to do the operations. Sure. Um, and if I'm asking my, you questions that are outside your wheelhouse, just say so. There's no, you know, no shame in that. We've got lots of other stuff to cover. Yeah. So, so I'd say 60 hertz is what's required to keep kind of the, the grid kind of in balance. And when it goes outside those bands, then you're in trouble. So yeah, definitely not my technical wheelhouse. Sure. You know, what I found interesting about reading that book, The Grid, because um, again, this is not something you think about, right? Like you go in your house, you flip a switch, the lights come on. It's like, it's so mundane at this point. It's so, it's so automatic at this point, you don't think about it. But what was interesting and what I think helps elucidate or, or helps m me to appreciate the problem that Bitcoin mining is ultimately, ultimately solving is that grids are like pressurized just in time systems, right? So it seems like, you know, these, these power generation facilities, and again, I'm going to butcher the hell out of all this stuff, but what it seems like is that these, whether it be coal or hydro or whatever, Ultimately, the process is separating electrons from atoms, right? And then dumping them into the grid effectively. And then that energy, it's not like you tell it to go a certain place. The, the electrons have a attraction to go places. And what your light switches do basically is reduce or increase or stop the ability for it to flow in that direction. You flip, flip it on and it flows to the light, creates heat, heat creates light. And, you know, and you have light and over time, because of that process, of course, like the substrate that's, that's holding that, that heat energy and creating light degenerates and degrades over time as a result of doing that. And that's why, you know, light bulbs don't last forever sort of thing. And so all of this energy just wants to be, wants to, to, to flow and go to anywhere where there's a use for it. And uh, you know, different appliances and different uses of energy require different amounts and different scale and, and are able to siphon it off in different ways. And the grid is the thing that's trying to balance all of this, because if you have, well, as with, in keeping with that kind of idea that it's pre somewhat pressurized and maybe that's the wrong word, but if you have too much demand and you don't have enough energy in the system, then of course you, you have a deficiency, you know, so there's blackouts or brownouts or what have you. But if you have, uh, too much electricity in the system, then, you know, something breaks somewhere or something is, is stressed and it degrades more quickly, something like that. And, um, you know, I'd never really thought about it in, in those terms before that it, it's, it's such a carefully balanced and, and managed system. Um, what's the, so it, I mean, first of all, do you have any comments on that, on that? And is that somewhat accurate as far as your understanding is concerned? Sure. Just a, a couple of comments is that, so in the book, the grid, you get to kind of see like, it's a, I use the analogy. It's kind of like, you know, the book sapiens, kind of the history of mankind, but kind of like it's, a, it's kind of the sapiens for you know the power right, system right, in the United yeah. States. 
and, and so like it was really kind of path dependent on how things came to be and to where you get this hodgepodge of systems, right? So that um, you could you know, venture to say that, you know, if the grid was created today and there was no people issues involved, right? Is that you would say, hey, let's look at the North American power grid and let's make it one system, right? Let's have one operator because we have all these transmission lines and we want to have all those transmission lines under the purview of just one grid operator that can use those lines in the most efficient manner to deliver power to, to all the customers. But we don't, right? And so that you've got this kind of you know, hodgepodge again of kind of these different systems and they can only control the, um, the, the wires that are in their systems and those electrons are flowing across into other systems where they can't control those. And they call those as like loop flows, right? It's like, um, that's a, a term from Northeast power markets where um, there's generation in Ontario, like in Niagara Falls. And, you know, that you have demand in Ontario, but there's the demand in Buffalo and those electrons are going from Niagara Falls into Buffalo. And they're just naturally going to the load that's closest where mm. on the Michigan side of the border down by Detroit, there'll be electrons coming into the system. So like they're still getting the net balance of kind of exactly what they were generating, but those electrons are flowing to wherever they're, they're needed. And so if you can, you know, zoom out again and saying, you know, if the, again, like a, it's very hard to reconstruct things when there's so much that's been built already, right? It's like, you know, changing laws that already exist, right? Mm. But if you were to start over, you'd say, hey, let's, let's make this one grid. We're going to get more effective use of these wires and the generation and we'll have a better, better way of centrally planning this. And so again, back into like the grid is a little bit more mucky because of all the different uh, utility companies, uh, uh, regional transmission operators. And, you know, it's really hard to kind of uh, be truly efficient with the power grid given kind of, you know, uh, the, the path of kind of how we got here and, and how those entities came to be. Yeah. <clears throat> and it, it seems that, you know, like when there's more demand on the grid, that requires more instantaneous generation, right? It's not like you can just, I'm sure batteries are used in some capacity throughout the system, but it's not like you can just generate a whack of energy and throw it in a battery. And then, you know, when, when uh, demand increases, you just, you bring it online. It, it seems like a system where demand is basically met with generation. And that's the dance that's being played is primarily. Is that accurate? <clears throat> yep. And, um, and so, go ahead. Yep. I was going to say, you can think about like Ontario power grid that has a, a large amount of nuclear generation, a lot of hydro and a lot of wind. So they got a lot of, you know, air quote again, renewable energy, you know, categorizing a nuke into the renewable is that there's times when the entire system demands, let's say the demand on the system was 10,000 megawatts and, you know, all of their, their, the interconnections, you know, say you got 2000 megawatts so that the total system can handle 10,000 megawatts of demand and 2000 megawatts of exports. But they've got these, you know, nuclear power plants that are, you know, in this example, let's say it's uh, ten thousand nuclear plants and, you know, five thousand of uh, of wind, and so they've got this real challenge because they've got so much generation on the system that's base loaded, and they've maxed out their demand and their exports that they actually in Ontario they need to they had to come up with a way to to ramp these nukes down during the nighttime because there was just too much energy and there was nowhere to go. You've maxed out your export ties, and it really is again to your point is it's a balancing act where Supply must equal demand at all times. It's not an option. And is what you're talking about, is that curtailment? Is that the right term to use there? And if so, what is it that they do to curtail? Like, uh, it seems to me you can either somehow like waste the energy, like just, you know, mm -hmm. do nothing with it, throw it off somewhere. 
or you can you can uh, use it for some other purpose. Yeah, so there's there's two types of curtailments. Um, there's a system security curtailment, which means that you know there's something wrong on the system and that you just must dispatch down because the wires are overloaded or something's there's a challenge on the system. So that's kind of a you know security curtailment, system curtailment. Um, and the other one, which is what is the most common type of curtailment, is economic curtailment, right? And economic curtailment means that you don't need the energy and it's there's too much on the system. And so the way that you signal that is through price, right? And it's saying, you know, I'm going to dispatch a price that is is low and I'll put it at zero, right? And so what is what is the behavior that's going to happen at this price of zero? And if it doesn't change anything, that means that you need to go lower, right? So it's like, okay, now the new signal is, you know, minus 10. You know, what happens? And so now it's actually generation needs to pay to inject power into the grid at these locations. And if they keep continuing to inject power in the grid, they say, well, price needs to go even lower. So we're going to go to minus 40, right? So the, the curtailment is through a price signal, right? And this is again in the referencing back to those competitive wholesale markets, which is two thirds of the US is they're going to send out a, a price signal at that location that is negative and it should get to the right behavior that says you need to turn down. And we can tie this into some Bitcoin mining economics later on where you know, there's going to be a price signal that's going to happen this summer, which says, hey, the price of power is too expensive where it's higher than your cost of mining break even. So the signal that's being sent to miners is to turn down. So there's a very you know, direct comparison to what's happening in Bitcoin mining which is a now kind of like back to the example of power is it's how you signal, which is, um, which is a good way to do it. And so in the case of these uh, nuclear generation facilities in Ontario that you mentioned, you know, I, I presume they try to minimize the, the range of the curtailment that they'll need to do in the, the initial economics of the project and, and, and kind of forecasting the project. But when it's not an economic curtailment, as you just described, when it's some other kind, how do they scale down in order to not overproduce in a, in a given moment? So you're asking outside of the economic curtailment, how do they kind yeah. of give the, yeah. So they'll give direct orders to a, to a facility that they need to have a, a new uh, base point and it, it's not a, uh, it's not optional. Right. And it's, right. it's, it, it's kind of like, um, uh, you know, think about like it's, the red alert saying that there's danger on the system and this is not kind of uh, to your discretion to say, you know, we don't want you kind of um, having an impact on the grid that could be you know, detrimental for others. So you need to turn down. Uh, so it'll right. be a direct kind of uh, base point instruction that's being given to these facilities. And it's not super common. It's usually like in certain locations of the grid that will have like, um, you know, going back, zooming out and saying, you know, like there's, transmission lines that are across all of the U S and other countries and, you know, transmission lines and there's distribution lines. So transmission lines are high voltage lines, you know, typically above uh, 69 KV and above, which can go to, I think it's 745 KV. And, you know, think about these as kind of like, um, you know, uh, fire hoses, right. That are moving electrons. And, you know, the bigger the KV, you know, the bigger the fire hose, right. The more electrons that can be moving down that kind of that wire. Um, then you can go into, you know, the, uh, distribution network, which is, you know, 69 KV and below, which go all the way down, I think the numbers like 14 KV lines. And so they're really thin lines, right? And so now think about, you know, some projects like a, you know, call it like a, a wind farm or a solar farm or, you know, that's located near one of these low KV lines 
right? Which means that there's, there's not a lot of capacity that you can fill on these lines. And so that it can be more constrained quickly, right? Whereas if you would have put that same solar wind project on this 345 KV line, very rare would that project be, be asked to curtail because of system security. So it's usually on the, the lower voltage lines that those things start to happen just because, you know, the, the grid can't handle it. It's causing some type of security imbalance in those localized area, but it's not a very uh, super common thing. And the higher the voltage, the less likely. And that's why a lot of these larger uh, uh, conventional power plants, like a coal plant, natural gas plant, you know, they're typically located on a you know, transmission voltage. And so it's less likely that they're getting these types of curtailments because they're on the, you know, the thicker fire hose of access to kind of injecting their power. Right. You know, it, in, in this space, it's become somewhat common to talk about the Kardashev scale and the types of like type one, type two, type three, Kardashev um, civilizations. And I think this was uh, basically a theory by a guy named Kardashev that basically dictates, you know, the uh, separates civilizations and the advancement of civilizations into different types predicated upon the source and scale of energy that they're able to harness, basically. And as you're saying all this, I, you know, it's making me think, you know, we really can harness way more energy than we're currently using. It seems like the bottleneck is the efficient storage and distribution of it, you know, and that, that keeps us from perhaps bringing more energy online just because the, the nature of energy and the, the nature of how these markets function is that like, you know, the, the challenge is maintain is, yeah, is the efficient distribution of it, I guess. And, um, you know, again, this will, this will be an interesting one to crack into when we finally get to the Bitcoin component of all this. But before we do, y you mentioned that in the early 2000s, things became somewhat deregulated. And, you know, it was interesting in the book, The Grid as well, to, to see how this emerged from like the days of Edison and then these like federally sanctioned monopolies to certain big players. And then it all became very fractured. And then, it, you know, according to what you said, in the early 2000s, things became deregulated. And perhaps, correct me if I'm wrong, there was a greater financialization of these markets. And it would seem that that financialization was, in fact, at least in part, to increase the efficiency of the distribution and, and trade of this market so that we could bring, bring to market more energy. We could make it more economical to, uh, to bring more energy online and not be constrained by its relative inefficiencies of distribution and storage and that kind of stuff. So can you shed some light on what the implications were of the deregulation, de, uh, uh, regula <laughs> de <laughs> de deregulation, Jesus, deregulation yeah. of, of the power markets <laughs> and how, what the financialization of those markets looked and looks like and what its effect was. Sure. Um, so I, you know, I think I recall that the deregulation, you know, started in, I believe it was in the UK first and it was with kind of natural gas markets. Um, and this was kind of, I, I believe it was in the era of like the eighties where they were deregulating, uh, you know, airlines and, and natural gas was the first commodity. Um, and so that, that occurred first. And, you know, the, the premise was, is that when you have a, a centralized entity, like a, a monopoly of the past is that they're going to be less efficient with kind of their decision-making about kind of what is best for the for the customer because um, the way those you know monopolies uh, made their uh, were profitable was that they were guaranteed a, a guaranteed rate base a percentage of of their um, 
you know, so they'd say they did a, a capital expenditure, they'd be guaranteed some type of rate of return on that spend. And so it was a guaranteed rate. And so it was saying that, you know, what are their incentives to really drive down the price for the consumers? And so it was kind of, again, you know, path dependent. You're just going through this time where there's deregulation that happened across these other industries. And I worked in natural gas. And since gas is the usually the marginal unit in a power system, is that it is natural that you can move this now into power markets because to deregulate power markets, you need to be able to have access to natural gas and kind of uh, having a competitive market so that you can essentially do the um, uh, hedging of those assets and, and whatnot. So the transition was, and the hypothesis was, is that you know we're going to deregulate these markets. We're going to separate um, uh, the generation from the wires uh, from the customer, right? And so those are the kind of the, the three categories. And so that way there can be com competition on the wire side, there can be competition on the on the generation side, and there can also be competition on the billing side, right? Like who is going to be your uh, provider of, of energy? So they broke out those categories uh, with the hypothesis that the, the markets would be much more efficient. Um, and, and they, you know, I've read lots of different articles and some people debate one way that it did work and some others will that it didn't work. Um, and, you know, I do think that it, it did. Um, but one thing that's really kind of an important to kind of uh, take away on this is that, you know, even as you're deregulating markets, right? And I'll, I'll use um, an example of, um, of Texas, right? Is that even as you're deregulating markets, you know, you're still making decisions on, you know, how are the costs allocated, Right. And so like every power system, even though you've broken out the generation from the wires, from the from the actual retail billing, you know, there's decisions that still need to be made on saying, you know, how do you allocate these transmission costs within this power system? Right. And they're going to choose different methodologies. Right. And I'll use an example of, um, you know, um, uh, taxes. Right. Is that you can go to some region like in uh, I believe in Texas where there's a less uh, less income tax. And you say, wow, this is fabulous, right? That's just less income tax, but property taxes are a lot higher, right? So like they've, they're still collecting their taxes, right? They're just choosing the method of, you know, how are you going to collect that, right? So even in these power systems that have deregulated the generation, the wires and the competitive uh, retail billing, you're still making decisions on how are you going to, you know, allocate certain charges. Um, and so this is what's, you know, favorable for, for, for mining in Texas is, is that they allocate the transmission costs based on what was your um, your uh, it's called a, a four Quinson peaks in ERCOT, which means you know during these you know the highest fifteen minute load intervals that happen from June, July, August, September, so four intervals, one per month, at the peak consumption point in those months, you know what were what was your consumption at that point? So what strain were you putting on the system when we we're at the highest peak point? And that's going to be your tag for the next year on saying that's how they're going to allocate the transmission cost. It was your pro rata share of what you were consuming in that peak point. So you can go in other power systems where they have a different approach. And so it wouldn't be as advantageous for, say, Bitcoin mining, but could be more advantageous for another type of uh, load type. So just you know, takeaway on this is <clears throat> as we went through deregulation, you wanted to make these markets more competitive. So you wanted to make sure you know, generation was competing with generation. And they weren't uh, maybe saddled by some, you know, poor investment decisions from a utility that they need to recover uh, capex that was spent in the past. But you're really competing with a new generation and entering system. On the wire side, it's still a regulated market. There's a public utility commission, usually at the state level, that's determining how are they allocating those transmission costs. They're different across systems. And then on the retail billing side, 
is that I believe there's only 11 or 12 states in the U.S. that are actually deregulated on the retail side, where the rest of the states are still regulated. Um, but this is giving you the choice about who are you choosing for your energy supply. So, you know, zooming out from that is, um, even though it's more competitive and they've broken it out, it's still kind of mucky because there's uh, differences in every system that you go into. Right. Let's um, <clears throat> let's use an example here to to help clarify what's going on. So let's say I'm in Texas and I throw up a bunch of, you know, solar panels. I become an energy producer. What happens after that? So there's, <clears throat> there's, um, there's two types of solar. There's like a, a grid connected solar and then there's distributed solar. Um, and distributed solar means that you put panels on your roof right? And you want to kind of consume your own uh, electricity from solar. And then when you're producing excess solar, you want to be able to sell that back into the grid, right? And so every state has a different way of handling that, whether they get paid at, you know, the same price as generation or some other price. I'm not sure the exact kind of uh, what this is like in Texas, but most power systems across the United States have some way of allowing residential customers to put solar on the rooftop and then sell the excess back into the grid. The second one, which is the larger portion of solar that happens um, in Texas about five years ago, there was, I think it was zero um, megawatts of solar uh, just because it wasn't economic yet. Right. And so now these cost decline curves have come down so much that uh, last year there was, I think it was five gigawatts this year. I believe there's 11 or 12 and they're forecasting within the next year and uh -huh. a half will be 20. Right. And so to, to put into context what 20 gigawatts is um, the average demand in Texas, so the ERCOT power system, is approximately 45 gigawatts, right? And so sometimes in summer, 75 and uh, on, on the peak peak day, uh, and then you know, lower other times, but you know, 20 is a big number. Mm. And so you know, within the next 18 months, um, you're getting up to 20 gigawatts. So the way you need to do that is that you need to uh, apply for an interconnection request with, with ERCOT. And what they're going to do is they're going to come out and they're, um, they're going to do a, a study to kind of understand kind of what will be the impact on the grid for you know reliability to say you want to inject 200 megawatts at this location on the grid can we handle that right can you know back to the kv lines right like is that hose mm -hmm. big enough to handle that additional amount of, of electrons they're going to put in the grid and so there's a process for you know across all different isos independent mm -hmm. system operators um, for how they do their interconnection uh, with that system and there's some uh, grid operators that do an excellent job of, you know, expediting this quickly and some that are, are, are more constrained and takes a little longer, but there is a process and, you know, call it a, I don't know the exact timeline, but call it about a year that you would have to kind of go through this process to connect your solar facility to that uh, location on the grid. And then once you get approval from, uh, from the grid operator and, and you play, you pay some type of financial security deposit to the grid operator, then you're able to build your project and, and to connect to the grid. Um, that's also assuming that there's the transmission lines that are built out. Um, so you can't just, uh, go locate in some, uh, some area where there's no transmission lines and say, Hey, we're going to build this really large facility here. Um, because there's no, there's no transmission lines cause that would need to get built out as well. Yeah. Is there a scenario where the grid would just say, <laughs> we don't need the extra capacity? Like it's not economical to build, you know, a, a you know, a 200 megawatt site wherever, even if there are connecting transmission lines, like how does, how does, how do the economics of, of 
projects like that work out? Yeah. So in, in Texas, back in uh, 2013, they, they undertook a really large project that was very forward thinking. And it was called uh, uh, the Kres Lines, which is a competitive renewable energy zone. And what this was, was it was ERCOT recognizing that there is this very large wind and solar resource in West Texas. And the majority of the loads that are in Texas are, are to the east, right? So they're not in the West Texas. Um, and normally what happens is <clears throat> as uh, one of these utility companies will need, usually needs to make a case to say, hey, it's more advantageous for us to kind of build out this transmission line to connect this load. So it's a really good project and it's going to be to the net benefit of the customer uh, as opposed to not having this. So it's kind of like a, you know, you're going to save $4 over here instead of paying five. So it's, this is a good project. And so it's, it's on the utility company to make that proposal. And then if, it, if the economics makes sense, they'll say, okay, we're going to approve that transmission line project that can be built out. And then once that line's built out, some renewables uh, developer can start to connect to these, to these connection points. In 2013, they were very forward thinking and saying, hey, we need to look at this different, right? We've got this really large resource right, that's over, over here. And instead of putting it on the onus of the utility company to make the case for it, Let's do this project to go out and build this, you know, 345 kV network to these areas that we think are really large renewables, um, and we'll build out these lines so that then the renewables can come and connect to the to the to the grid. And so when they built this out in 2013, they, you know, the total capacity of these lines was uh, full capacity ratings about 16 gigawatts, but really can only handle about 12. Um, so they expected over the next, you know, 10 years that these lines would would get filled up from new renewables projects. Um, and it took a couple of years. It took two or three years because there's such a, you know, such a great resource that's in that West Texas area um, that those lines filled up because the renewables projects were built so fast because now they had a connection point, right? And so now you kind mm -hmm. of you zoom out again and you're looking at West Texas and, you know, you know, uh, West Texas experienced um, a coincident peak, a peak system demand this past week it was 75 gigawatts. Uh, and at that time, I think it was something like 35% was coming from wind and solar. And for a portion of the day is that the, the, the lines were all full, that the prices were actually uh, being, there was curtailments that were happening during the day because there was too much wind and solar that it couldn't get across even on this you know, super, super hot day, the, the highest peak load they had in ERCOT. But again, it's just, there was such a great amount of resources there, but the limitation again on those power lines to get the, the power across. Um, so you can zoom out again and say, you know, how do you get more power from West Texas to these load centers? And so in, in the past is that what you need to do is if you're, um, so say you're a wind developer is that you'd have to stand by and say, okay, we're going to wait for this new transmission line to get built, right? So that we can develop this project because we, we're sitting on this large resource of wind. Um, and we're going to wait for that project to develop and then we can connect to the grid and we'll, we'll be able to. Uh, inject uh, that those electrons in the grid. So now it's just you know pulling in just a bit of the Bitcoin side is like this is now the first time ever that there's a new customer that can be located anywhere in the world for whatever capacity sizing that you want that can actually be the second customer to these uh, these projects that can actually take all or none of the power, so any volume, and it offers a new price, right? So it's it's refining this you know local megawatt into the global megawatt and so now as, you know, as, as an entrepreneur, you can step back and say, you know, isn't two customers better than one, right? And so mm. 
Now you've got the option saying, I've got two that's available, right? I've got the grid or I've got this, uh, this other customer. And so this, this new way is that you can actually bootstrap these projects and say, okay, I'm going to figure out a way to make this, you know, Bitcoin mining work until there's additional transmission lines get built out, or I'm going to, you know, overbuild the system that's in, in West Texas and be comfortable with these, you know, prices that are very low. But the expectation will be that when they do build out additional transmission wires, well, these miners will, will turn down when the price above their break-evens and those, those, those electrons will flow into those load centers. So instead of waiting for transmission, this allows you to do both at the same time is build the transmission and build the projects. Yeah. And I, we're going to get into that, but I, I don't want to, I don't want to go there yet. So, um, if I'm a energy producer in this, in this area, um, and I, you know, the transmission lines are there and whatever I build a resource and if the demand for energy, so basically existing energy producers would, ra- I mean, supply and demand, they would rather not more energy producers come online, right? Because then they get less money for the energy that they're producing, assuming that the supply is increasing faster than, than the demand. Is that just a kind of a baseline accurate statement? It is. There's more to it, but I'll, I'll let you finish kind of your thought and I'll, maybe I'll layer that on top. Okay. Well, maybe, maybe you should go first because what I was going to break into next is the reason why and the mechanics of the financialization of energy markets before we get to what I think is the, probably the next stage of that, which is represented in Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining. Um, mm-hmm. But so y- sure. you go ahead and then I'll ask the questions about financializations. Sure. Um, so there's two types of um, renewables projects. There's new build and then there's existing, right? And so in in the US as they've... Um, I believe it came out in like the, the late 2000s and they were trying to think of a way to how do we incentivize more renewables, right? And so and it was with a subsidy and it's called the investment tax credit and the production tax credit. Um, so the investment tax credit is uh, essentially it's a, um, a 30%, I, I don't have the, the latest numbers, but it's, it's a CapEx reduction where if your CapEx was, you know, hundred bucks, you're going to get a 30% tax credit, right? So that's the investment tax credit. Uh, and then there's a production tax credit, which says that for every megawatt hour that you produce, we're going to give you um, $25 per megawatt hour, right? So this was a subsidy to say, how do we you know, incentivize more wind and solar to be developed? And this was a, a federal subsidy applied to any, any jurisdiction across, across the US. Um, so now you can you know, think about for new build solar projects is that to build a new project is that Usually there's a, a renewables uh, project owner that finds a parcel of land, puts all the pieces together, and they're essentially looking for a customer and off-taker because they need to be able to market their project to somebody who's going to finance it, right? And so you need to find somebody like uh, a Bitcoin miner or other customer that's going to say, hey, I will take that off-take. I'll purchase 75% of what you're going to produce as produced, right? So whatever comes off your solar farm or wind farm, and I'll give you X dollars per megawatt hour and included in that cost is I'm going to get the, the energy, but I'm also going to get the environmental attribute, which is like the, uh, the renewable energy certificate, like a, a REC is what it's called. So you're going to get, you know, the, the offtake comes from that, that wind farm or the solar, solar farm. And so they're really, you know, hedged, right? So they've transferred that risk of, you know, what is the actual price of the energy going to be to that offtaker, to the customer that purchased that power. And usually these contracts are for um, anywhere from 10 to... They can go to 20 years, 25 years, but usually they're 10 to 15 years that are these uh, new, they're called power purchase agreements that you have with uh, winter solar asset. 
So they don't, they don't take on the risk, right? And, and, and if they really want to be completely risk averse, they're going to sell 100% of the capacity of the project. They might have one buyer that took 75%, another one that did 25%, and you know they're done. Um, if they have a view that they think the area is going to be uh, have high price energy in the future, is they might take what's called a merchant position where they're going to sell 75% and they're going to keep 25% for themselves, and they're going to settle at whatever the real-time price is in the future. So that's, you know, come back to saying, you know, in these areas of West Texas, you know, more would be thought to be kind of more disadvantaged to those uh, uh, wind and solar in the area. But if you're new, you're, you're signing these offtakes, so you're actually not exposed to that risk. Now go back to the existing projects. Um, so for existing projects that are still under contract, right, in that power purchase agreement, they're usually unaffected, right? Especially if somebody's done 100% of their exposure, where they um, where where they have more risk to prices is when you know say they would have done a, a wind farm in 2005 and it was a 15 year PPA expired in 2020 and now they're exposed to whatever the real time price is. So now they're not very happy with the prices because prior to this, prior to that 15 year period, they had this offtake, but they're also getting you know getting paid from the PPA provider. But they're also getting this federal subsidy that was this production tax credit of about $25 a megawatt hour. So now they just lost both of those, right? They lost the $25 that was the federal. And then now they just lost this, you know, PPA that, you know, call it uh, 30 that was made that was signed in the past. And so now all they're getting is just the real-time price and the value of what their rec is. So they've lost their their, their subsidy and now they got to find a new off-taker, which could tie into the financialization. How do they actually do that? Um, so the takeaway on those two points is um, whenever you see negative price energy in West Texas, it's not necessarily, you know, the wind developer or, you know, the solar farm that's housing kind of that loss. It's usually there was an off-taker that had that, um, that's, that transferred that risk over. But when these subsidies were, uh, um, expire, and then these, you know, these farms and uh, wind and solar is really exposed to real-time price and they have more risk uh, that they'd be facing for, for pricing. Right. So correct me if I'm wrong, but the, you know, again, you want to start up a renewable project in West Texas, as long as there are transmission lines that you can connect to, will you lock in or guarantee that government 25% subsidy, but you're not necessarily, it's not a guarantee that you're going to have a power purchase agreement with for the remainder of the 75%. You might, and then they'll lock in a rate and that's great, but it's not guaranteed, right? So there is still like you know, you have to do a, an economic calculation whether or not yeah. you want to build out a power generation resource, right? Obviously. That's right. And, and usually if they don't find an off-taker, like, you know, go again to that, you know, KV line in the, in the fire hose. If you're on a, a new project that's in West Texas and prices are cheap and you go to um, ERCOT and say, I want to connect on this 345 KV line, which happens to be located in a corridor where there's lots of renewables already um, and prices are negative. And we'll call this example here that there's a lot of negative prices here. It's going to be pretty hard for you to find a customer that's going to want to do an offtake of your power because you're in a location that's got a lot of negative price. And uh, not to make this, this is part of the financialization again, is that when a, a PPA is signed with a customer is that that PPA is signed for that renewables project to deliver that energy to a hub location that's within the grid. And for example, in ERCOT, um, there's four major hubs. Um, there's Houston, South, North, and, and West Hub. 
And so that renewables project is going to say, I'm going to deliver power to the West hub and then the off taker. So say it's, um, uh, say it's Lansium, so the company I work for, um, say we're the off taker on that is that we're going to be responsible for now either settling the power at that hub location, or we can, you know, schedule that power to a different location, which is our, our load zone. There's a difference between, and this is a really big deal is that, um, generation gets paid the power price for exactly their location. It's called a locational marginal price. So it's called an LMP. And so they get paid exactly what the value is at their node, right? And the reason is, is because you want to send the right price signal, right? You don't want to have, um, you know, some area that is very, uh, um, low price energy. You don't want to incent more of that as a grid operator. You want to be able to send the right price signal that there could be some nodes that are very high priced, um, that you want to have that generation go locate next to there because, um, you want to have Bring the price you know, balancing down. out these prices. Now load, load doesn't pay the LMP price. So you think about, you read the, uh, the book, uh, The Grid, is like, you know, the meter is, you know, what is measuring kind of our consumption at our houses. And, you know, uh, I remember my meter when I lived in Ontario, Canada, was a, it was just, you know, the meter that would just kind of like has a disc going around. And once a month, there'd be somebody coming look at my meter to see how much I consumed, right? And so there was no way of telling, you know, how much did you consume at 5 p.m. on this, you know, the 22nd of June, right? Like it was just, what was mm. the total? And so there's been an evolution of the meter that's happened. That's a technology, right? And, you know, that's happened over time. But, you know, the way that they've done load for what load price is, is it's, you know, think about Texas again. There's these four zones and there's a zone that's West Texas. It's the, the load play, pays the volumetric weighted average of the load weighted price of all those nodes that are consuming at, right? So it gets the average. So example is that you could have some very high prices that could be down, you know, in the Permian Basin around some of these oil and gas refineries and some very cheap prices up in the panhandle where there's a lot of wind and solar, but that load is going to pay the average of all of the actual nodes in that zone, right? So it's, it's not a, an exact match, right? For that, that wind resource that's located in the panhandle to say, Hey, you can take my power right? Because the load is paying some other price that's not the same prices as, as this generation. So that's why, you know, in financialization is that the PPA is set at some type of location, which is the example here is this hub. And then, you know, an off taker would say, okay, I'm going to take that power from the hub and I'm going to schedule that to my load zone. And so there's some price basis exposure that both are taking. And so if you're a renewables project in the panhandle and the average basis between your location and the panhandle and this this hub West is $10 against you. That means you're getting a $10 haircut, right? And all the power that you're consuming because you're delivering to this hub. That's a higher price location than where you're actually producing what that, that LMP is for that location. And mm -hmm. planning the seed for the later conversation is that in, in Texas, you know, there, there's been an evolution of the load and in Texas now there's something called a controllable load and the controllable load can be responding to price signals and act the same way as a, as a supply side resource, like a generator. And so they're making, it's an evolution now where the, the controllable load is actually going to get the LMP price. So now you got a one-to-one -one matching, right? Of having this generation that's a low cost generation. You can pair this load and this load doesn't have to worry about some other price that they're paying that's not directly tied to where they're at, but they now get a one-for-one -one kind of being able to locate right beside that, that, uh, that, that node. Just on that very last point, can you, 
Can you say that again? What what innovation or what change in, in regulations has made that possible? So it's a <clears throat> it's a technology change where um so for for Lantium, the company I work for is that we are uh, an energy technology company that's building out electrical infrastructure and developing software that allows you to convert large loads into controllable loads, which simply means that everything a power generation plant can can do to respond to price signals, these controllable loads can, but in reverse, right? And so the 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 technology change is that um, this was talked about in ERCOT, and I think it was 2003 was when they first discussed hey, we want to have these controllable loads that can actually be price responsive. And, and I mentioned before about there's the grid, oper con grid operator controls generation, but has no control over the demand, right? They just got to forecast what they think is going to happen, mm -hmm. right? And so in 2003, they just, I think it was 2003, they discussed the idea of this controllable load and as a holy grail of kind of a, a load being responsive. In 2013, I think it was, is that they came out with a protocol change to, to the rules in, in, in ERCOT, and essentially said, we've got this new type of uh, resource type, and it's called a controllable load resource. And they set technical requirements of saying, to be a controllable load resource, you need to be able to base point follow, which means when the grid operator sends you an instruction, you need to dispatch exactly to that point. They're going to dispatch you down. you got to be able to drop your load and then dispatch up. So you got to be able to do base point following. And the second thing you need to do is you need to do primary frequency response. And what that is, is a mentioned about that... Um, Texas is an island. It's an electrical island. There's, there's three interconnects across the U.S. I mentioned that if you could do over, you just have one, but there's three. There's an east, a west, and there's <clears throat> ERCOT. Um, and so ERCOT has some challenges because it needs to self-support, right? Like it needs to be able to provide, um, if something trips offline in their system, they can't lean on their neighbors for electrons to flow across those borders and to balance their system. Right? And so they need to be able to have what's called primary frequency response, which has been provided by large generation facilities like uh, coal plants and natural gas. So in ERCOT, to be this control below, is you need to base point follow, but you also need to be able to do uh, primary frequency response, which means that whenever there's a drop in the grid frequency, you need to automatically detect that there's been a drop and automatically be able to load shed so that there's a drop that happens. You drop your load, which is the exact same thing as a generation plant ramping up to balance a system. So this was created in 2013 saying, okay, this would be amazing. We don't know what's going to happen. Uh, who's going to be able to kind of, uh, what types of loads are going to come in the system? And um, <clears throat> time passed and there was lots of different customers, uh, industrial customers, uh, refineries, whatnot, that tried to do this, but it's really, really hard, right? And you think about like, um, um, you know, typical demand responses, it's, it's kind of like an assembly line, right? Like if you're manufacturing something, an easy way to think about this is like a, you know, a, a, a car and the assembly line, right? And there's a process, you know, if you stop A, that means you stop B and you stop C and you stop D, right? Like, so just turning these things down is, is pretty tricky. And so then, you know, there's not many types of loads that are out there where you can be following base point following within like 15 seconds of a response and then automatically do a primary frequency response. So many tried to do this, but nobody could do it. And then in 2020, was, was Lansing was the first one to qualify as this control below. And what allowed that to happen was, um, so IP that we have as a company, and then also pairing that with, with Bitcoin mining, which is uh, a single energy intensive application. So it's not an assembly line, right? It's just one energy intensive application. There's only a step A, right? Mm -hmm. So what you need to do is stop step A, right? And now you can be, you know, quick responses. 
So, you know, zooming out again is that, you know, in 2020, it was the first time they ever had a controllable load resource. Um, Winter Storm Uri came through and that caused a lot of um, discussion about market uh, redesign and saying, you know, what are the things now that we're, you know, 20 years past, you know, normal deregulation that, you know, if the system was the way it was today, you know, what would be the things that we would design for rules and products, right? Given the high amount of renewables and the desire to have uh, more reliable grid. Right. And so what came out of this that started with the Public Utility Commission was uh, to have more load that's responsive to price and to have it at the right type of signal where they can actually say, hey, low cost load should go to areas where there's low cost power. And so what's been agreed to is that the controllable load resource would be the first one to do this. And so that the controllable load can get instead of this uh, load zone pricing is they're going to be able to get this LMP pricing. Right, which now lets you pair the load exactly to where this low cost energy is to, to address these challenges. And at the same time, these controllable loads can still provide all those essential grid uh, balancing services uh, that I mentioned about um, base point following, uh, which is being able to respond to prices in real time. So if prices are high, drop right down. And then primary frequency, which allows you to um, provide these ancillary services that were usually typically only uh, um, delivered by generation in the past. I think I got most of that. Um, and it, it's really beginning to sound like based on, you know, the latter part that you just explained there, that Bitcoin may cause the definancialization of power markets because it seems like, and I do want to address this before we really dive into the Bitcoin aspect mm-hmm. of this, but it seems like the financialization w- was like, you know, this is, th- this is an oversimplification, but like a attempt to well, with paper, make these systems more efficient, right? With, with different contracts and, and things like that to make the distribution of this power uh, perhaps more efficient. And then something like Bitcoin is mining is coming along. That's probably, at least it seems to me, and I'm of course going to get you to reflect on this, uh, you know, disintermediator or, or make redundant some of the financialization of the industry. But from your perspective, because I know you worked in this for a long time, what was the reason why the energy markets became financialized? What was the problem that these financial instruments or, or activities were solving? And what is the state of, of that industry at the moment? Sure. Um, so in that regulated um, model, is that there is there's no need for additional financial products to to do any type of hedging, right? So if you're in the past, you're that monopoly that owns the generation, owns the wires, owns the customers. You just got this guaranteed rate of return, so there there's no need to do anything. When that switched around 2000, right now you've lost this guaranteed customer, this guaranteed rate of return, and so you you seek out ways to kind of optimize the margin from your generation assets and to do so is is requiring you to uh start with different well you need to have different financial products available to do so or you know so think about um the example being you're a utility company that just got deregulated um it's 2000 and you you own a few thousand megawatts of generation and in the deregulation what happened was is that you you couldn't still own the wires you had to break out the business right and so you used to own the generation, you used to own the wires, and you used to own the customers. And so what you've decided to do is you're just going to keep the generation. Right? So now you're out of the wires business and you're out of the customers. So now what do you do? Right? It's saying, 
okay, I've got this, this commodity that I have, and it has a, I've got a future production of this commodity, which is the power generation. You know, how do I monetize that to essentially, um, and every company would have different kind of desired outcomes. One might be, I want to have sustainable earnings that are over long term that are, you know, called, you know, medium earnings that are predictable over long term. Another one might say, I've got more of a view that the future is bright and I don't want to do any hedging because I want to see the real-time prices. I'm not going to do any hedging. And so each of these companies that owns this generation fleet is going to do different things based on what either their desire from you know, shareholders and public companies of you know, what they're wanting or if they're private companies, just what is their view of the future and what are they, how do they want to um, best monetize these assets? Mm-hmm. Um, and so then if you think about that generation coming again and saying, you know, the easiest way for me to do this is to kind of find a customer that will take megawatts off of me at a fixed price for a long term, right? So it's the, kind of like the PPA, right? And saying, I've got this, um, and this is kind of the advent of, you know, uh, they call it CNI customers, which is customer and industrial customers. And saying, I want to find some industrial customer that's got a lot of, lot of demand, and I want to sign a long-term contract with them uh, for my power generation. And so now there's new layer of, you know, uh, complexity is like you now you're taking on some counterparty exposure, right? Because you have credit risk. Is this customer going to survive or whatnot? In the old model that didn't wasn't the case. You're just guaranteed a certain rate. But you're saying like, how do I kind of use the tools or you know create tools to kind of you know, guarantee some time of of income in the future or be exposed to kind of real time pricing? Um, so there's a long story there to kind of to to say that it was a new challenge that was existing as saying. Um, Companies own these large fleets of generation. You know, how do they monetize that generation? So that's where like a lot of the creation of these different types of products came out. And the majority of these companies look for customers and all these customer companies do this, right? They try and find um, um, customer business that they can sell those megawatts to. But there's just, it's not a, it's not a natural match, right? Like, so for example, um, your power bill at your house, um, do you have a one-year contract or a three-year or is it just kind of index or... Or, or do you know? <laughs> well, I don't, I'm in a temporary place right now, so it's not. It's it's. I don't handle that uh, right. that aspect of things. It's done yeah. on the compound level. So, I'm, and I'm guessing, you know, whoever did it, it's not procuring a 15 year contract. They might sign up for like a one year fixed price contract or two years, but there's mm-hmm. this mismatch that occurs with the generation and the customer level because generation is like a you know 25 50 year asset, and the customer only wants to sign for one or two. Right, like at my house here, I've got a one-year fixed-rate contract. Right, so there's a mismatch that's happening. Right, and so these generation companies say, "Well, I want to sell customers to guarantee kind of my uh, a fixed rate for my my power, but that's not always available. So they need to find uh, other ways to do so. Um, And so they can also go into do in the financial markets where they can do uh, um, a contract for differences, which is like a swap, saying I want to sell calendar year twenty-three at this location for $50. And there'll be somebody else taking the other side of that trade. But what they're doing is they're locking in a fixed price for their power. So assuming they generate their power into the grid, they'd receive the index price from the grid operator, right? Because there's the transaction happens, you inject power, you receive that spot price. Mm -hmm. But since they had this swap in place, that's a contract for differences, they're going to exchange that index for this other contract and they're receiving this fixed price. So that just means that they've, They've locked in the price because they had this fix for index swap that they had done that guaranteed that price. Um, 
And so this is kind of a, a long-winded way of saying that you know, all these companies that were now long generation needed to find ways to monetize their assets. It was very challenging to do so. There's a customers you could do. There's a mismatch on the timing. There's not a lot of customers that are, say, steel plants that will sign a 10-year power deal for large megawatts. But they're trying to find as many ways as possible to lock these off so they can kind of uh, better forecast what their, their earnings are. And what I'd layer on to Bitcoin is like Bitcoin is a, is a new tool. So it doesn't definancialize, right? It just gives you more options, right? So it's a, it's a new tool in the kit. Yeah. Well, let's, let's dive into it now. Cause I think we've arrived at uh, the right place to do so. Okay. But I mean, on the, on that point, does it not at least somewhat definancialize? Because what you're saying is like these, these generators are using these instruments to try to make sure they have a buyer at different increments of time, a year from now, five years now, 10 years now, 10 years from now, 30 years from now. And Bitcoin enters the scene and it basically says, I'm always a buyer. I'll, mm-hmm. I'll, I, I can be a forever buyer for you. The price will change, but I'm always going to be some kind of a buyer. Now, you know, maybe you'll still want to hedge and have financial in- instruments because of the differences in potential price levels. And you're trying to hedge what, how much that forever buyer in Bitcoin might be willing to pay you, but does it not change somewhat uh, the dynamic of those financial movements? Because now every single power generator can have a perpetual buyer for their energy. Um, So I would look at it as when you inject power into the grid, you receive the index price for your location, right? So it's the the power index price. Mm -hmm. And, so what I would uh, argue with Bitcoin is that there's a new index price, mm-hmm. right? And it's the same thing as the power grid because, you know, the power grid had to, they had to prove for how much you could connect to that grid, right? So on Bitcoin network, you don't need that approval, but uh, for the connection, which is makes sense for reliability of the grid is that you had to get approval to make that connection. And that allowed you to receive the index price for power. And that index mm-hmm. price for power would allow you to do these other types of financial instruments where you could do a fix for index swap or, you know, transfer those megawatts to some of the location, but your creativity started and ended with that index point at the grid power point. Um, so what I'd argue is, you know, Bitcoin mining is there's now a second index price, right? And the index mm. price is the Bitcoin price. And, you know, that's determined um, by the, the Bitcoin price, um, the hashing on the network, the amount of rewards. And, you know, this, you can do this forecasting over time as well to say, you know, what do I think the value of the forward curve of this Bitcoin price is over time? And you're going to have to make some assumptions, right? And they're going to be wrong, but they're your best uh, guesses at the, the future, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'd say that, um, so now think about like you're the owner of this generation fleet is that, um, so in the past, there's, there's arguably already two customers before. There was index price for whatever volume you want that the grid operator can take. And the second one was a lot of these generation assets would do co-location with like large industrial customers. Right. Um, an example is, you know, a steel plant or, or if some customer needs like steam, they can do like a co-gen facility and they'll be, be behind the fence. So meaning that, you know, they can either sell to index for the grid or they can sell this customer that's directly behind the fence that they're providing that is, you know, essentially that large customer. And so now this is this third one, which is this index price that you can have for, for Bitcoin that's similar to the grid that can take all you want and then there's now ways of new tools for you to say, okay, well, you know, what do I think is the higher price, right? Is I've now got these, you know, and we'll just go back to two customers. We'll just do the grid and, 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 and uh, 
call it power index and Bitcoin index, you know, like which, which index is going to be higher. Right. And, you know, where do I want to sell it? And so now you got these new tools that you can say, well, I can base this off this power index and make all these decisions, or I can base space off this Bitcoin index and I can, you know, make decisions about saying, okay, I think the Bitcoin index is, we'll go back in time to, to last year in November and we'll say, wow, this is, you know, substantially higher than this, the power index. The power index is, um, you know, $50 and the Bitcoin index is 500, right? That's a big difference in saying, okay, well, if this Bitcoin index is 500, you know, what are the things that I need to do for financial instruments to hedge this, right? To ensure that I'm going to continue to get these really large cash flows tied to farming, like to, to mining Bitcoin at this node. So you would project out over time and say, okay, you know, the price of Bitcoin at this time, we'll use the example is 65,000 and you'll, you make a forecast and maybe you're just using the futures curves for, for Bitcoin and it's you know, 65,000 today and 67,000 in five months. And you're going to make this forecast about what the hash rate looks like over time, right? And kind of what does that mean for how many uh, Bitcoin you're going to mine? And you're going to convert that into saying, you know, based on the growth of the, the network and, you know, what my hash rate output is, what is my, you know, this is a bit of a mind trip too, is like, a power generator looks at like, what are the megawatts that I have in the future? It's my generation production forecast, right? This is different saying, what is my Bitcoin production forecast, right? Given the expected growth of the hash rate. And then you can, you can do hedging on that and saying, okay, well, I'm going to forward sell Bitcoin to lock in the actual value of these Bitcoins, assuming that my forecast on, you know, the, the increase of hash rate, the difficulty increase on the network. And if you're wrong, right, you know, you've, you've sold Bitcoin, which means you're actually short difficulty, you've made a forecast of difficulty. And if you've misforecast, right, that volume is going to be, you know, over or under, but these new tools now exist that during a very high price Bitcoin environment, where the revenue per megawatt hour on that index is very high, there's actions you can take to hedge that out over time, right, to be able to say, I want to lock in these, these gains, and I don't need to be greedy for this to go higher, because this is already you know, significantly higher than what I'd be getting on the power index. So that was a lot. So I'll just pause there. Yeah. Well, I mean, so basically your answer, it may be the case that Bitcoin introduces greater complexity in the financialization of energy markets because you have the traditional financialization and now you'll have similar uh, activity taking place just with an added buyer with some different characteristics that they give you different exposure to different prices over time and different calculations and, and that kind of stuff. Um, so, I mean, a lot is made, uh, the, the, the typical refrain for people that are looking at how Bitcoin is going to influence energy markets is one is you have a way of subsidizing, you know, energy projects, be they renewable or otherwise, so that you can, you know, you can perhaps get revenue from them prior to being connected to a grid and deriving energy from selling to that. And so it's uh, effects as a, uh, acts as a type of subsidy. The other one of course is, is taking waste energy or, you know, flare, flare gas, that kind of stuff, and actually using it for productive purposes, i.e. mining Bitcoin. And then there's this one that we've touched on already where it serves as a kind of energy sink or a, a more efficient, more economical method of curtailing energy. And that's, you know, you bring up the, um, the behind the, was it wall or wire? Behind the meter. You know, something yeah. like behind the behind meter, the fence, something yeah, like behind the, fence, yeah. behind the fence, something like a steel mill, right? And if you're using them in some way to help with your curtailment, 
I mean, that's great, but I think, uh, I don't know if it was you or if I read this elsewhere, where they don't have that much flexibility in how they can help with that because they can only turn down for a certain period of time before their quote unquote production line gets kind of glued up and it's, it's detrimental to them to uh, assist you in curtailing any longer because, you know, for lack of a, 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 for lack of an easier way to say it, the steel hardens and the whole process yep. gets, you know, messed up. Whereas with Bitcoin mining, it's a switch. It's binary. It's it's on and off in a moment, and nothing is affected by doing that in terms of the its processes, right? Like it's it's it's, it's either working or it's not. Um, so you know, kind of a, a mishmash and long winded question. But now that we're at the period where we're looking at, okay, what are the implications of Bitcoin mining coming to this system of of energy economics and distribution that we've been discussing, like? What do you think are the, are the the primary implications of of this? So I think that as a starting point, right, it's kind of zooming out on um, power systems around the world, right, and it's it's saying that you know we've made this transition from uh, zero wind and solar in the year two thousand to now varying degrees of what percentage of energy is produced by wind and solar in, in different areas. And, you know, you step back and you say, okay, this transition's happening, right? And it's like a parade that's in motion, picking up speed. And whether or not you agree with the parade, and in general, the parade's happening, right? So these power systems are going to renewables. Um, and so you think about, you know, today, these power systems at varying levels and, you know, picture this future. And there's been like, um, you know, reports out there, um, IEA is one of them that does, you know, net zero emissions by 2050. And even if you're doubtful for that, and let's use 2100, right? So, so that makes, makes it easy to, to say, hey, that's possible. Is that, you know, assume a world where all power systems are, are based on renewables, right? And they've completely phased out um, fossil fuel generation, right? So, you know, almost 80 years from now is to get there, right? Is there's, tons of challenges. And a lot of times it's not really thought about like, what are the implications of having power systems that are all renewable versus, you know, dispatchable fossil fuels. Um, and so we're getting to have glimpses of what this looks like in certain areas, such as ERCOT and California, which are at 25% renewables on, you know, what are the things that kind of break in the system when you have a higher level of renewables? And because what that means is that there's going to be days where you can have the entire system is made up of more than 50% renewables, right? So think about a, a day that's windy and, and sunny and there's some shifts that happen to the wind and there's a solar drop that happens at nighttime. And when we talked about that 60 hertz, is like the, the grid operator has to balance that at all times, right? And so now you'll go to this you know, grid of the future and say everything is, is renewables. You have some, some nuclear, you have some wind and you have wind and solar. And you know, um, maybe in this future, there's dispatchable hydrogen, but assume that's not there right now. Um, is that the grid operator needs to be able to figure out ways to kind of balance these gyrations that are going to happen. And, you know, it's almost like, you know, buying insurance, right? Like if you're in some type of, you know, hurricane zone and it doesn't, there's not a lot of hurricanes there, you know, the insurance is cheap and you don't need a lot of it. Right. But if there's certain types of shifts in the climate that all of a sudden your city's in an area that's got a higher chance of, of, of hurricanes is like, you know, you're going to need to have more hurricane insurance because it's more likely it's going to happen. Right. And so in these power systems that are making these transition, you know, it's a little bit the same way of like these power systems need to have more insurance because they need to have something that can backstop these events that happen where these, you know, 
sudden drops in, uh, in, in supply side that's come from wind and solar. Um, so what Bitcoin mining is, is, and really it's like, you know, what is needed? So like, instead of just going to like Bitcoin mining as a solution is like, um, grid operators need additional flexibility, right? And it needs flexibility of some resource that can be called on to come online to balance the system uh, in, in milliseconds, right? Uh, to do so. And, you know, currently, you know, flexibility in these power systems has been provided by, you know, four types. <clears throat> There's your conventional generation of fossil fuels. Um, there is uh, interties uh, that connect, which are, you know, the free-flowing megawatts across different kind of uh, boundaries. Uh, there's storage, which includes batteries and, and also hydro. And then there's demand side resources, demand response. Um, so up until, so as of today, batteries and demand response provide 1% of flexibility combined. Um, and so IEA and these other agencies forecast that in this renewables future is that they're going to make up over 50%, right? And so again, taking the broad category of batteries and demand response is that you need to have something that can really kind of change the behavior instantaneously to balance these systems. So again, back to this 100% renewable grid, um, you need to have a lot of batteries that can kind of manage these changes or demand that's going to change in kind of response to price signals, et cetera. And so, you know, these systems need more flexibility. That's kind of the, the really important point. And where do they get that, right? And what are the best, you know, options for flexibility? What are the different costs for flexibility? Because they different have cap different CapEx costs. But you need to figure out, like, what is... You know what is the best uh, mix of, of flexibility that's required, and what you know we believe for for Lansing and myself is that um, you know it's it's not A or B or C, it's A and B and C, right? Like you want to have as many options as possible. Um, so in this future, is that you know I'm going to zoom in on the demand response right now because um, they forecasted that 50% that's going to come from uh, batteries and demand responses. That it's 20% from demand response. And so currently for demand responses, like the, um, the ultimate form of demand response, kind of like use the term like a Rolls Royce of demand response is this uh, industrial steel plant, right? Which has the ability to has a single energy intensive application, which is that arc furnace, right? Which consumes approximately 95% of all the electricity across the process of steel plant, right? And so what they can do is they can say, okay, we can provide our, we can change our demand because we have a large demand and we can turn down, uh, but we can only do that for two hours. Right, because after two hours, the steel hardens, it turns into ignot, and it's a big challenge, right? So that that's not going to work, but it can provide you with this two hours of flexibility. Um, and so it's you know that's kind of the the best demand response we have right now. And then you layer on you know um, Bitcoin mining, which we think is kind of like the first one. It's this transition of um, you know physical manufacturing to digital manufacturing, and in this Bitcoin mining is it's like a single energy intensive application. And I think about it like there's no such thing as a work in progress. Um, you know, 100 terahash a second means like 100 trillion jobs started, finished, ended, monetized within the second. So you can kind of turn these on and off, right? Which think about that. It's right? like, insane. It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and so now you got this Bitcoin mining, which is, you know, the ability to turn down immediately. And as it's growing, it's really, you know, providing this bridge that allows you to go from kind of a fossil fuel current state to this all renewables or blended renewables that requires a lot more flexibility. So, so mining at the highest level where it's offering the, the greatest service is in its ability to be flexible in two categories. Um, one is energy balancing, which means that um, being price responsive in real time as these prices go up and down, that it can follow base point instructions from a grid operator. 
It's under the control of the grid operator. So meaning it's not a voluntary action that you hope something's going to happen. Like you are literally being dispatched by the grid operator the same way as power generation. And the second is, is like the, and the term is called ancillary services, which is essentially uh, the insurance, like the, the backup power. So like uh, it's the capacity that's not being used for energy balance, but can be called at any time to say, um, say a, a wind farm trips offline, right? And, and you need to you know, make a really fast change. Well, you need to have some type of reserves that can come online. So it's, you know, these are the services that, you know, these um, Bitcoin mining loads can provide right now. And then in the future, we also see this as kind of come across as, um, you know, compute at some point, we'll be able to do it. It's, it's harder than mining because mining has all these jobs that are, you know, there's no such thing as work in progress. Whereas compute, you have to pause these jobs, right? There's work in progress. So it's a little bit, uh, an extra steps to do that, but it is possible to control these loads. And then on deck from that would be something like hydrogen, right? As hydrogen starting to get built out, you can start to control those loads. Uh, but Bitcoin mining, in, in, in my opinion, in, uh, is that it's really going to be sustained as like the, the best ultimate flexible resource just because of you know, how you can just stop this uh, on call. And there's no such thing as jobs that are work in progress. And um, I do think it's like the ultimate load type for that. Yeah. I mean, if you're calling uh, a steel mill, the Rolls Royce of demand response, and it only has like a you know, two hour window where it can really fill that role. And you're saying Bitcoin can do it on a dime anytime for any length of time. I mean, what are we calling that? Like the starship of demand response or the, you know, the, or the go. It seems, it's, it, yeah. The go, I mean, it almost seems too good to be true. What, and, and I, I'm kind of hearing from you that this demand response aspect in particular, if we are indeed heading into a more renewable oriented future is more valuable than the kind of economic subsidy aspect of, you know, just having a, a second buyer that's always there. You know, sometimes it'd be a, a high paying buyer and other times it might be a very low paying buyer. But this, at least at this point in the evolution of energy markets and Bitcoin, you think this demand response element of Bitcoin mining is more uh, beneficial or useful or intriguing than, than any other component of it? Am I hearing you right on that? Uh, yeah. So I, I think there's different... Uh, so mining provides provides different services for different um, stakeholders, right? And so the the renewables developers are a stakeholder, and they're ecstatic about this new customer that can come to town, right? Because they didn't have that option. And, and then the second big stakeholder is a is the grid operator. They need like a you know I kind of see Bitcoin mining as the Swiss Army knife of of balancing loads and providing capacity. So there's there's two different providers, and in doing so, that they're really benefiting themselves because. For Bitcoin mining to provide these services is that they're they're being compensated for doing so uh, because they're providing this capacity payment in some area that is a market for this, and then they're paid to do the service the same way the power generator is paid to be on standby to provide some capacity backup. That these miners are also uh, paid for that. The difference is is that if you're a power plant and you're uh, sold some capacity that can be called on, you need to ramp down. So you've had a a true you know to make a, a decision on opportunity cost. Do I provide energy or do I provide this backup power? Because when providing the backup power, I'm foregoing the value I would have had for energy. So I'm sitting here, whereas a Bitcoin miner is, it doesn't change its behavior. Like a, a Bitcoin miner that's in the money, so it's, you know, the break-even cost is uh, much higher than the power cost is, you know, they're running at full the whole time. So they're able to provide that capacity while staying at the same, same state. And so if the grid operator calls them, they dispatch down as opposed to the power plant that needs to dispatch up. 
So it's a it's a real big benefit that's provided for these grid operators. But the the winner of this as well is is the actual miner that's being compensated for providing the service. What are the because this this almost sounds too good to be true in a in in a sense you know so one I'm kind of curious about given the work you guys have been doing like what your customers and the people you have conversations with how do they respond when you tell them that this is now something that's real that exists and and like you know what what should we th- be thinking about in terms of um, you know downsides is the wrong word but you know where are the problems here I guess. Yeah. Um, it kind of reminds me of when I first bought a Tesla in 2014 and you'd tell somebody about, you know, they'd ask questions about the Tesla and, and they'd say, well, I guess it's kind of, uh, say it doesn't cost much for battery charge or, or gas equivalent. Like, oh, well, it must be a lot of maintenance. And you're like, well, no, actually it's got 90% less in moving parts than a combustion engine. There's no maintenance. And it's like, well, it's gotta, it's gotta be slow. It's like, well, it's, it's super fast. So it's one of those things that <laughs> you, you're highly, it's highly doubtful, but it's really hard to find the problem in it, right? And so I kind of say that comparison as well on, on mining where um, it really is a comparison where that is, there's so many tremendous benefits uh, to doing so. Um, before kind of going into kind of uh, the customer side, I just want to give another little bit of an analogy. Um, so, so think about kind of, you know, mining as like a sponge, right? So like some people use this as a battery, right? And it, it's kind of a good battery reference because a battery provides services where you know, can inject and kind of withdraw from the grid and you know, mining can't store power, right? You can't store it, but you are acting like a sponge, right? That you're able to, to soak up that power. And then when you decide to, you don't, uh, that, to not to use it because the price at a different level, you can pull out of the water and, and not be the sponge. So the example is um, in the Texas panhandle is that there's, there's a lot of, there, there's 5,000 megawatts of load in West Texas. There's 30 gigawatts of wind and solar and four gigawatts of, of natural gas. So you have 34 gigawatts of capacity and just five gigawatts of load. The amount of transmission that goes across currently in ERCOT, across this, it's called the West Texas export, is approximately 12 gigawatts. So that means that, um, sorry, pardon me, West Texas load is six gigawatts. So take the 12 gigawatts plus the six, you get 18 gigawatts which means that anytime there's more than 18 gigawatts of generation coming from wind and solar plus natural gas, that means the system is constrained and it needs to turn down, right? And they're going to send a price signal to, to go negative or whatnot, but they get too much generation. So now imagine you're in you know, West Texas, it's a spring day. There's not a lot of load in the system just because it's not you know, winter demand or, or summer demand. And there's a lot of wind and sunshine that's happening. And um, you look out your window and you see that the wind turbines are at full, right? Really spinning fast, right? And you look at the weather forecast and it looks like it's going to be like this for the next five days, right? And so like, if you think about like a battery that would go in there and so say it's like a, a thousand megawatt battery, which is bigger than any battery that I've ever heard of. And, and so say it can store power for four hours so it can store four gigawatt hours. Is that like on hour one, it's going to charge, hour two is going to charge, hour three, four, and then you get four gigawatt hours of, of power, but that battery can't inject that power back into the grid until prices are positive again. And if prices aren't positive for five days, the battery sits idle, right? It's just, it's fully charged. It can't do anything. And it'll wait five days until the wind and sun stop uh, shining and blowing uh, and inject that power back in the grid. Now, the Bitcoin miner is in the same area. And so say it's a one gigawatt facility as well. 
um, it's going to, on hour one, it's going to charge, hour two, it's going to charge, hour three, four, four. It's going to go all the way through the end of this, you know, five days and it's going to consume power around the clock, right? And so it would have consumed, you know, um, five days times 24 hours times a gigawatt worth of energy versus that battery stored, you know, four gigawatt hours. So what that's done is it's created a higher economic payout for these generation assets in the area because they weren't being curtailed. Even if prices are uh, are negative or zero, they're not as negative as they were before. Um, so they're you know increasing kind of that low cost low cost price to that area. So they've acted like a like a sponge in that place. And then whenever the prices return to a level um, where the price are above the break evens, they're just going to turn off again, right? So the point on this is like you know a lot of folks make pairs say you know, well, batteries, can't batteries fix that? And it's like, well, batteries do a lot of wonderful things, but what they don't do is store the continuous amount of power indefinitely adding to that. They can only store so much and then they need to wait for the right time to inject that power back. Whereas the mining can consume it all the way and then turn down when when needed. Um, yeah, so that's kind of the summary on, on that part. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, always having that buyer of last resort is an incredible <laughs> advantage because, you know, and, and a much... Of course, a lot of people in the mainstream news world that have very poor understanding of all this say that Bitcoin wastes energy. And then, you know, Bitcoiners will, will have the rebuttal that no, Bitcoin uses waste energy, but it also seems to be the case. And, and this is kind of just a semantic difference in the latter. It's basically saying the same thing, but maybe a little bit more impactfully that Bitcoin mining reduces waste and it re reduces energy waste, you know, because it sounds like in this scenario, all that curtailment is energy that could have been used to some productive end, but it's not because of the dynamics of the transmission and the, the demand in the market in which it's operating. Whereas if you integrate Bitcoin mining into this resource, then you're able to turn. And I like, I think I, I like that term that you use where you turn a local megawatt into a global megawatt. And that's basically money. That's what money is, you know, a, a globally fungible money is basically that. And like people sometimes recoil at the notion that Bitcoin is like a economic or energy battery because like, oh, well, it doesn't store energy and you can't throw it in a motor and, you know, output work. No, but money is basically meant to be the most in-demand thing. And what does that mean? That means that it's the best at compelling action, which is pretty much what energy, you know, any form of energy is. Is it like it's the thing that is going to be most accepted in return for some action that you want to take anywhere where it's accepted. And when we're dealing with an emerging globally fungible, globally accepted money like Bitcoin, I mean, it's so profound that you get to, instead of wasting, i.e. curtailing, turning down an energy resource and not being able to monetize at full capacity, now you're able to, you know, whenever you're not able to bring that to market at a better price, you're able to turn that in to a globally fungible, form of energy in the form of money at source and then do with that whatever you want with it you keep it on your balance sheet you turn it into energy somewhere across the world like you know literally electricity in japan from having generated in west texas or something like that and i mean like it's just it's mind-blowing to try to come to grips with the implications of that you know mm -hmm. and i I don't know. What do you, what do you, what do you come up with when you're, when you're sitting down blowing your own mind with the implications yeah. of, of all this? Yeah, it, it is a mind trip, right? It, it's, it was a big enough mind trip that I left 20 years in power generation <laughs> space because I wanted part of this, right? Right. Um, so I kind of look at it as like, you know, so not only are you kind of 
I said this example about kind of in the panhandle. It's like you're improving the economics of kind of these resources that are there. And what that does is it's you're priming the pump, right? You're incentivizing more renewables to come to the area that wouldn't come there because you're you're impacting the the LMP at their node, which incentivizes more of them to come, right? So it's not just you know soaking up the excess, but it's sending a, a price signal. Um, so what I also think about on the local and global is like, you know, local markets have constraints, right? The global market is unconstrained, right? And there's, if you think about it, it's like a market that has physical wires and is constrained should cost more than a globally unconstrained market, right? Because anybody can access the global market. You don't need permission, right? You can just, anybody can access it. And it's never constrained. There's never you know, uh, ethernet congestion that's preventing your hashes to get to the certain location, right? So like, so what we've gone through in this evolution is that the global price of power, which has been set by the Bitcoin network, and I've referenced this before, is saying that you know, right now we're at the stage of early adoptions and that, you know, the, the global price is above the local price most of the time, right? For long periods of time. And it's sending a signal, right? It's saying, you know, add hash rate to the network, right? Because there's an arbitrage here. Um, but as you advance over the next, um, call it 20 years, you know, if Bitcoin's going to do what we think it's going to do, right? Like, you know, we're currently on this footprint of approximately 12 gigawatts of power providing for the Bitcoin network. Um, so in this other future, let's call it 20, 30 years out, you're likely going to need like 200, 300 gigawatts of energy. And if that's being provided by, you know, fossil fuels, there's going to be a big target on the back of, of, of mining, right? But if you think about this again, that... The global price of power, we'll use an example today that they, uh, as of today is the S19 miner global price of power is $120 per megawatt hour, right? And the local price of power is actually $80. So there's not much difference right now, right? And so we're going in a period where power prices are getting higher. Um, is that in the long run, right? Like if the price of power, uh, the global price of power is, you know, $30 compared to the local price being say 60 or 70 the only resource that can actually provide that power is renewable generation because, you know, the cost of producing it is less where these, you know, fossil fuel plants you know, have high, have marginal costs for burning fuel that it's uneconomic to do so. Right. And so in the long run is that what it looks like is going to happen is that, you know, there's this global price, which is the premium Bitcoin right now is the buyer of uh, first resort and last resort, right? Because the price is high in this future of 20 years, 30 years out, you know, Bitcoin mining truly becomes a buyer of last resort saying, that if the price of the locally constrained grid is lower than the global price, here's your off ramp, right? But if it's not, you know, you know, send to send to the grid. Um, mm-hmm. So there's two kind of, you know, I believe futures in that is, is one is that you know majority of your Bitcoin networks provided by renewables, um, and the reason for that is because the global price is below the local price, but that's going to take a lot of time to get there. Yeah, and what do you think? I mean, what do you think this means for what the Bitcoin network will ultimately be consuming in terms of like its energy footprint as a percentage of global power consumption, you know, being used in this variety of ways and, you know, and, and what do you, what do you make of that? What is your kind of projection or way of seeing its, its footprint of energy use? I think the footprint's going to be driven by the demand of kind of the success rate of, of, of Bitcoin. Um, and I hear a lot of folks make a comparison of, you know, what is the hash rate needed? Right. But, you know, I don't, 
usually think about as hash rate. I think about it as just kind of like, you know, what is the power that's needed that essentially gets you to a point where, um, you know, going back to my friend that introduced me to Bitcoin when price was 10,000, the cost was 200 is that in the long run, right? The cost to make or cost to buy needs to be balanced out. And there should be some type of, you know, premium paid for somebody that's, you know, uh, to making it right. They're getting some type of profit, but mm-hmm. in the long run, these need to, to balance out. Right. And so then, you know, use an example of, um, you know, Bitcoin in the future of, you know, many years out and we use an example of like a million dollars per, per Bitcoin and pretend we're at a point in the halving cycle where there's, um, um, one Bitcoin per block. Right. And so then we're getting, you know, six Bitcoin per, uh, per block and ignoring transmission, uh, transaction fees. So that means you have, you know, $6 million of revenue. Right. And so then it's like, okay, for that $6 million of revenue per, per hour, right? Per That's hour. Mean. Per hour. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Correct. Th- thank you for that. Um, for that $6 million per hour, you know, how many megawatts were needed to provide that is going to be based off of the marginal cost, right? To be able to kind of produce, to be economic, right? And so say that, you know, at that time, the marginal cost is, you know, $50, right? You take that 6 million divided by 50 and say, that's the number of megawatts on the system that need to just at the margin, right? So it's more, I believe, a function in the future of saying, you know, what is the price of Bitcoin? What is the total that's divided for that hour? And then what is the marginal cost of producing a megawatt that's that's the, the marginal economic megawatt for mining that is then going to set like how many megawatts are, are needed across the system, right? So it's not necessarily about the, the hash rate. And what that does is it brings that balance of saying, well, you can buy Bitcoin for a million dollars or the cost to, to make it's a million, right? And these things should swing. But right now they're, they're swinging drastically because we're kind of in this uh, adoption mode, right? And first movers, and but in this future, and, and yeah, it's easier to use like 50 years out, right? Because you got to think the volatility is a lot less at that time. And if you're going to get into mining, it's because you think that you can mine it for less than what it costs to make, but it's only slightly, right? And so like, what does that look like uh, to do so? Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree with that, that the the spread will eventually close as the, you know, all of this matures. And so the, the seniorage, if you want to call it that, or the profit on the production of money will go from, you know, whatever it's been, 90% to 5, 10, 15, whatever it ultimately ends up being. But it does bring up an interesting question around how much money is required, like what percentage of the capital in a market, and in this case, in a global market, because we're dealing with a global mar- uh, money. And, and if we're operating under the assumption that one day Bitcoin will become dominant global money, um, how much money is required in a market for all the goods and services that it must be used uh, to transact or that it's the transaction mechanism for all goods and services. And I don't know the answer to that question. Is it 10 or 50%? Not, not sure. It doesn't seem like it would be more than that, but you know, but then the, but then it becomes, well, if we're saying that the spread between the amount of energy devoted to, uh, acquiring Bitcoin through mining is going to be closed then and the price of bitcoin is such that it's able to perform that function as global money then it would seem like whatever percentage of global capital global money represents if it's bitcoin then its energy footprint will be something similar to that do you know what i'm i'm getting at there i think so yeah <clears throat> does that make any sense <laughs> <laughs> i i think so I, I still get tripped up on this stuff too and kind of thinking of this 
this future of Bitcoin as global money and then trying to link it all the way back to kind of uh, footprints of power and whatnot. Um, but, you know, an easy kind of um, uh, quick test for me is saying, you know, when is it uneconomic to, to add more hash rate to the network? Right. Cause that's the point of balance. Right. And it's, you're not going to do these new projects unless, you know, you have a CapEx cost that can be recovered and amortized over the call it like a four or five year period. And that your OPEX uh, is, is manageable that there's some return on that. And so like, what is that point where, you know, you don't add new projects to the system because it's, it's, I believe that it's not going to be never ending where you're, you continue to add and add and add. I, I think they get to a point where, you know, the network is, is built kind of similar to how, um, you know, power generation is built is that there might be, you know, 1% increase in demand year over year. So that needs to be made up somewhere, right? So you need to have some new generation that comes online and in different regions around the world have different types of growth rates, right? But they're not continuously adding 10% new generation every single year. So there's, there's going to be a point of maturity that's going to happen. And, you know, I believe in that the future is that, um, <clears throat> you know, right now when there's, you know, there's a bear market that happens and, um, there's liquidations that are happening on mining rigs. You know, I believe that, you know, the buyers of these mining rigs in the past have been kind of uh, companies or individuals looking to kind of procure low cost miners. And, and I think in the future, when it's completely obvious that, um, that these miners can be capacity paired with renewables projects to give kind of second options or, or any type or connected to grid and different locations. But I think that the buyer becomes these renewable projects that need to do a one-time CapEx spend of having kind of the infrastructure for the shelving and then, you know, every bear cycle or whatever that they're just doing a refresh of old gen miners that they're replacing that now gives them option value for converting the local megawatt into this global megawatt, right? But I do think that there's a future where, you know, you don't add more hash rate forever. It's going to come to that balance of what's, what's, what's global demand and is, is it 1% growth per year, 2%, uh, but unsure. But um, just want to kind of link back for a second too, where you'd ask them about like, you know, what do our customers think about this and, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, about the, the benefits of mining and and the share on that is that, you know, when we were deciding, we, we uh, this company had developed this IP that converts these large loads into you know flexible, controllable loads. It was like, do we do we keep this for ourselves, right? And go into these different you know markets and kind of create these loads and be able to kind of monetize these ancillary services, provide these you know benefits to grid operators, or do we also you know consider license the license this licensing this to others? Um, and so. You know, what we believe is that in this future is that you need a lot more flexibility and we're not going to be able to provide that on our own footprint, right? And so we have the two paths. Is one is that we develop these campuses um, that can range from, you know, um, you know, 100 megawatts to a gigawatt right, in size that we're, we're developing. Um, and then we're also licensing to others that essentially are able to do the same for their mining loads. So they're able to use the IP that we have that can then participate in the wholesale markets and to be dispatchable by grid operators and also to participate in providing these ancillary services. And, you know, uh, they've been very happy with, with this because it, it's kind of like saying, um, do you want to collect this additional value from your, your, your facility that you didn't know existed when you probably built this out, which mm -hmm. reduces your all-in energy costs um, for, for actually doing your mining. So there's a lot of customers are, are very happy with it uh, for being able to, to use this on their uh, facilities. Sure. So just to clarify on that point, you're saying that by through the integration of this second option that is Bitcoin mining and what your company does and what you've developed, basically you help people maximize the efficient balance between the two options so that they're maximizing revenue for any given generation resource. Is that right? Um, 
so we what we do is we do a hosting agreement hosting uh, model where we we host customers on our site mining customers and we use our IP to essentially uh, dispatch the load up and down in response to grid operator base point signals and also you know primary frequency response so we're we're doing this uh, for our customers which gets our customers that come to our site a lower cost energy and it's a win-win for both sides there and then the second part is for large Bitcoin mining uh, facilities that like aren't operated by ourselves is that we we license our uh, IPO to them so that they can actually do the same thing for their facilities so that they can use their facilities for dispatching up and down uh, and being price responsive. Um, and I just kind of tie out to that is like, this goes back uh, to prior point, we're talking about uh, a little bit about like evolutions of, you know, systems, power systems compared to, to mining is, um, you know, when I first started trading power markets, um, you would, and deregulation happened, it wasn't overnight that these, you know, the companies own these large fleets of generation assets. It wasn't overnight that they got sophisticated with how they offer, how they operate those facilities. Um, they've been used to in the past, just baseload running these facilities around the clock and getting some type of payment. And then all of a sudden they're in a competitive market where they're actually being rewarded by this actual price that's being paid out as a, as a clearing price. Um, and I used to get you know frustrated that I would be you know trading these markets and I'd expect power prices to be you know quite a bit higher because um, you know the cost of gas was so expensive that for generation to run is that you know they need to buy this expensive gas and to run so power prices need to be really high. I'd be frustrated where the next day that these prices came in much lower and you discover that these these gas plants were running right and it was they shouldn't have been because what the the signal was saying was saying um, sell your gas. Right, because the gas is mm -hmm. worth more than the power you can generate. Right, so sell your gas back to the market and turn your plant off. Right, because you're gonna make way more, and mm -hmm. it didn't happen overnight. Right, it took them probably like three to five years for that transition to happen, and now they all operate like that. Like there's 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 no power plants in these power markets that are not running economic, and so for Bitcoin mining is I think that you know what's happened is there's been a discovery of saying, you know, this Bitcoin break-even point changes over time as with the the Bitcoin price and the hash rate. And all of a sudden, you can have these, you know, power contracts that you've purchased. I mentioned a contract for differences, like a, a financial hedge, and you can purchase this. And there's going to be times where, you know, the cost of mining is uh, more expensive than, the, than what the cost of power is, right? So you should be turning down, right? But you need to have the right technology to do that, right? It's it's not as easy of a thing to say, okay, let's uh, let's go, you know, flip some breakers or let's you know do some changes to the equipment. Like you need to be able to kind of do this the same way, like a power generator can for kind of, you know, a fast response across your mining facility. Um, and so we're seeing this kind of evolution that's happening as the industry matures that, you know, in 2017, you're going from like a two megawatt container in a industrial park that's distribution connected, right? Like that was kind of like what mining was. And, and now, you know, you go to Rockdale, Texas um, for the riot facility and the, you know, it's a 700 megawatt facility going up to uh, maybe a gigawatt or something, but that's a, a really fast progression. Right. And so then you're seeing these types of you know, facilities look to say, how do we, you know, convert our facilities into what would be like the power generation equivalent so that we can respond to prices and essentially do the right thing. So we're not spending, um, you know, a hundred dollars on power to get, you know, $50 in Bitcoin. We only want to be, you know, spending when we're getting more value in Bitcoin than what the power costs. So that's the evolution that we're seeing happening, which is really good for the end customer because you're now getting this price responsiveness that says, you know, Bitcoin is only a buyer at a certain point, right? And now at this $120 level, like it's, it's going to turn down quite a bit, especially like in summertime this year in, in Texas, 
Um, the August price average is 175, and the Bitcoin break even is 120, which means that there's going to be several hours in August that are going to be above the break even of mining. And so the, these miners can then turn off, right? And say, or they can make a, you know, an economic calculation that says, do I expect that the value that I'm going to receive for mining, so call that your, your revenue per megawatt hour, is that going to be greater than the cost of you know, consuming the power um, less the ancillary service value that I'm going to receive? Because right? I'm going to buy energy and, and sell this ancillary service. And if you know, the Bitcoin price break-even is above that, well, I'm going to mine. But if it's not, well, then I'm going to, you know, just going to be dispatchable in real time and I'm going to be price responsive, right? And I'm going to just do what's best. So it's a really big win for uh, these power systems where you now have loads that were previously 100% inelastic. You know, demand was just always the same. And now you're getting this price responsiveness where it mirrors more like a supply curve and versus just supply and demand curve versus just this supply curve and then this perfectly straight line that's inelastic for demand. So. Um, yeah, so it's a real big benefit for grid operators and for these mining facilities. Right. So it sounds like you're optimizing the economics of, well, both really, but op- optimizing the economics of the miners so that they're, well, they're optimizing their monetization, yeah. right? So that they're, they're not operating at a loss at any time. They're finding that sweet spot, sweet spot at all times. And that allows them to be a better node or, you know, component or contributor to the broader grid stability and, and power supply, generally speaking. That's pretty much <clears throat> yeah. it. Yeah. So like, I'd, I'd say that um, the average price of electricity in a year, so uh, for easy math, say it, was, um, say it was $100, is that in Texas, the top 5% of hours in Texas makes up approximately $35 of that average. Mm-hmm. Right? Because mm-hmm. you have these really high price skews that there can be you know, $4,000 hours for a few hours and then drops back down. So if yeah. you're a mining facility and if you would have run base loaded around the clock, you would have paid hundred dollars per megawatt hour. Mm-hmm. If you were price responsive and I'm assuming that you didn't sell ancillary services because there's a high value in providing this capacity, but assuming you were just running as price responsive and you turn down for any hour that's above your break even and assume that it was 5%. Well, instead of paying hundred dollars for your energy, you're paying 65. Right. So that makes a really big difference because you're not consuming those high price hours just on those ones that are, that are below your break even. Totally. That's awesome. Um, and to go back to, you know, what we were discussing before that, just to put a, a capstone on that one, mm-hmm. I think that the, the issue is, is that if Bitcoin becomes global money, then its increase in purchasing power will roughly reflect global GDP growth. Because let's say there's 5% more goods and services produced in a given year, 5% GDP growth then a limited supply money, the purchasing power will have to expand or increase by roughly that amount to reflect those new that new value created in the economy. And if that is the case, and the, the energy devoted to mining Bitcoin doesn't increase, then we were back in that scenario where the spread between the market price of the spot price of Bitcoin and the net value of the energy being devoted to the system begins to widen. And if we're operating under the assumption that over time that gap will find a, an equilibrium and more or less stay there, then it would seem to me that the energy devoted to the network would have to keep increasing as the purchasing power of a limited supply global money keeps increasing as well. Um, at a high level, I agree with that. Um, and where I would need to do some 
pull out the pencil and paper and do some math is around <clears throat> around those having cycles, right? Mm-hmm. So like as a having cycle happens, right? Does that change the economics that maybe needs you know less power on the system based on because you're at like some type of stable condition, and then you've mm-hmm. just done a having. So what did that do on the actual? This is where I go back to again is like um, you know the total revenue for the hour. And you know what is needed is based on the marginal cost of these generation and what's the marginal unit. But so I the so I think at a high level it makes sense that like if you are doing you know five percent GDP growth and it's global money that there's a progression of the of the network by a certain percent. But then you need to just to be able to, to check into that on what that what that means for having cycles and kind of how that impacts that the, the required yeah, growth. I'm, I'm sure I'm sure there's definitely elements and aspects of that that we're we're not considering and that will emerge and become clear in the future. Um, you mentioned that I'd like you to expand a little bit on the notion that um, power generators will scoop up basically redundant or or you know like waste um, like ASICs. In the future, you know, that aren't necessarily economical for someone for whom Bitcoin mining is a primary revenue source, but the economics of being able to buy really cheap miners and using it as a curtailment mechanism rather than the cost of the other options available might mean that like many energy uh, producers are looking just for a sink like that. I've heard you explain it elsewhere, but maybe you can just expand on it a little bit. Yeah, so I, I think that there's a natural fit for companies that own generation assets to have different use cases for Bitcoin mining and how it, it serves um, it is beneficial in several ways. And so there's there's one scenario that says um, I'm a power generation, I'm a nuclear power plant, right? And that means I'm I'm base loaded and and I can't ramp up and down my generation easily. Right, like it's it's meant to stay at the same output all the time. Um, what I can do is I can say, I want to be able to provide flexibility to the grid, so I want to upgrade my nuclear facility by having a load that's located behind the fence that I'm going to be sinking power to. Um, uh, you know, call it like 100 megawatts of a 500 megawatt nuclear power plant. But now that I've you know delivering 100 megawatts to this load that's highly interruptible, you know given if there's a market design change in the rules that allows these plants to do so, is that generator can now monetize additional ancillary service revenue to the grid because it can provide this flexibility to the grid and be able to provide this, you know, essentially flexibility through how it's dispatching its own mining load on site. Um, and can also do some type of, you know, energy balancing on the grid that says, you know, if there's times where the power price on the grid is higher, well, actually, you know, let's take the load down on this mining site and let's push that to the grid. So you can you know give optionality to a, a power generation asset that was seen to have very limited flexibility, right? So that's uh, one part. Um, and the second one is that um, what the way I was trying to um, I, I think kind of power generation companies have you know been around for a very long time. So um, power markets started to develop around you know the turn of the twentieth twentieth uh, century, and you know, where power companies are now is you a lot of the senior leadership in these companies are are baby boomers. It's 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 harder to kind of explain new concepts to them that aren't you know what they're used to. Um, and so the way that I was trying to explain this at my previous company that I worked for was, you know, if we went to market and said we want to have option value on this generation asset and we want to buy a put option, an hourly put option on this generation asset, that's a five year hourly put option at a certain strike price, 
you know, how much would that cost? Right? And the answer is a lot, right? Because one mm-hmm. is it's not a very liquid market. You know, somebody's gonna have to make up that, that, that custom product for you. They're gonna take on the risk of kind of, uh, they're taking on the risk of you know, creating that instrument. So say that instrument costs um, $50 million, right? For a hundred million, hundred megawatt, $35 put option hourly for five years, right? So it's a hundred million. And, you know, so that's one option, right? Because you want to have additional optionality on your, on your plant that you're not stuck with this power when prices are low, but you want to be able to kind of, you know, sell that off. Option two is you can put on a mining load on, on the site and you can build out the infrastructure and buy the miners. And maybe it costs you 20 million to do that. Right. And so now you have, here's this option, right? You can buy this financial put option for a hundred million, or I can buy this physical put option for 20 million. Right. Doesn't that make sense? Right. And so that's kind of mm-hmm. putting the framework of it. It's just a put option, right? It's giving you additional optionality and you can buy the physical for much cheaper than it is on, on the financial. Um, so that's one other aspect. Um, and then the third one, which I'll kind of link to um, renewables um, is that, um, you know, and we've talked about this kind of already here is that there's right now is that you only have one option, which is just the grid. And, you know, it just really makes sense that, you know, a lot of folks often talk about how break-evens don't work on renewables because, you know, these miners cost so much and you never get your, uh, never depreciate the asset. Uh, an example is like a, this is dated, but it was a one megawatt of S19 miners was 3 million over a course of four years. You need to recover a hundred dollars per megawatt every hour for four hours just to pay back the CapEx. Um, whereas if you buy an old gen miner, like an S9 miner, and I think prices are going to drop significantly here in the, in the near term, say that costs you 50,000, right? 50,000 to buy one megawatt, right? You can amortize that uh, over four years and maybe it's, you know, $3 per megawatt hour. It's a very low number. Um, and you know, you've already got this infrastructure in place this racking. So now instead of, um, you know, that, that put option that you have of this power generator that, you know, might've cost you this $20 million, you know, this renewable assets can go and buy and say that only costs them like a million. It's going to give them a much lower strike price, right? Cause that strike price on the, the initial generator might be, I said $35. So if, say that was actually a hundred dollars, you know, the strike price on this renewable one might be, you know, $20, but it is something that you want to have as an option. Um, so those are some use cases about kind of, you know, upgrading, you know, assets that were previously not flexible into flexible resources. Um, and then using kind of, um, a put option on existing generation, especially in locally constrained power grids on how do you create another off taker in addition to kind of your grid connected? And then how do you tie that into to renewables and given different CapEx levels and, and lower costs, but it's, a, it's an option with a lower strike and lower CapEx. So what, what do you think are the implications of Bitcoin becoming so integrated into existing energy markets? Because I mean, from what I'm hearing, it seems like for most energy producers or, you know, even other components of the market, they're going to want to integrate the benefit that you've been, you know, uh, explaining with regards to Bitcoin miners in some capacity at, at some point. And, and so, like, I guess part of the question is, do you think this is going to be an imperative, basically, for most most energy producers to integrate at some point simply because of the more optimized economics it brings to their operations? And the second part of that question is, if that's the case, and Bitcoin is so intimately integrated with these markets, is it 
both integrated and insulated in such a way that if Bitcoin's price really, you know, takes off for whatever reason, that it doesn't cause much disruption as a result of that integration or that it does. And that creates a kind of another kettle of fish or another another set of problems for, for uh, producers that have integrated it into their uh, operations. Yeah, <clears throat> those are good questions. Um, so the way I see it is that uh, for integrating as so call the three stakeholders, right? So the stakeholder of the grid operator, uh, the stakeholder of the supply, the generator, and then the, uh, the stakeholder of the customer, the customer being kind of the, the miner. Um, so for grid operators is that, you know, right now you're seeing it integrated into systems like ERCOT, which is higher levels of renewables and less so in the Northeast power markets. Cause last year in ERCOT, I think it was 26% came from renewable energy and, in the Northeast power markets of PGM, New England ISO, ISO, New York ISO, it's like 5%. So they, they don't really need it that desperately. Right. Mm -hmm. And so like, but you know, in that future, as you progress to a lot more renewables and systems, they're going to need it. Right. It's as they progress with more renewables, but just they haven't got there yet. And there are still kind of needs in there, but just not as much as these other systems uh, with higher levels of renewables. So the takeaway on that is as a stakeholder is, is like, you know, grid operators, as they make these transition to renewables, are going to need higher levels of flexibility. The more renewables in their system, the higher level of flexibility required. And so that's where kind of the need of integration will, will occur and, uh, and just kind of, uh, and at what pace kind of given kind of matching kind of how they're adding more renewables in their system. Um, for the, uh, the supply side is that power generation is interesting in that um, as a company has a choice between the type of generation they want to um, uh, operate, right? So they can, they can choose to be a natural gas generation company. They can choose to be coal. They can choose to be wind, solar, right? So that's a choice, right? Because those are just fuel inputs. Um, and so that I've seen, you know, some announcements that have been made about, you know, oil and gas companies that are taking advantage of this optionality of this being able to monetize uh, you know, kind of stranded kind of uh, fuels that are located there to through through Bitcoin mining, and I'd say that the advantage that those companies have is that they've already got a mark on their back as being oil and gas fossil fuels. So adding Bitcoin to that, it's not going to change the brand. Right? People are going to say think less of them, right? Because they're already kind of um, been labeled as fossil fuels. Um, mm. The challenge in the power generation side is that it's the jury's. Um, I'd say that the narrative internal to these companies is it's still not hundred percent defined that mining is advantageous for power grids and has all these wonderful attributes, right? It's still in that kind of question mark of, um, you know, when I was the power generation company I was at was, is this a fad, right? Is this going to be around? Um, should we treat this as a customer and just settle a customer or should we kind of in-house and kind of own the value chain of it? Um, and so I think there's a lot of concern on these power generation companies on being a first mover of integrating Bitcoin with their generation assets, um, for the 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 concern of the branding of you know what would the market think of this and would they you know label this as saying in, in the category of like coal or something like that. Um, so I'd say that you know the conversations I'm having with you know several of my my contacts in, in the space is that a lot of companies are talking about it and doing all the work and they've they've done the work and you know some companies feel like they're you know too late. Right, like they they feel like they've there's a lot of companies that are way ahead of them, right? And so it's um, it'd be foolish to think that these power generation <laughs> companies are thinking about this. Right? Yeah, but it's kind of who wants to be the first mover, who wants to take the headwind of kind of 
answering all these questions about why did you enter the space? And, and that's much easier to be a, a, you know, a close follower after that kind of company has taken the front right on that. So, so yeah. I'd say that power generation companies want to integrate uh, Bitcoin. They all see the value proposition. They're asking the questions, do we treat them as customers and we just sell to the customer or do we take that option value to ourselves and integrate? A lot of them want to integrate, but it's just, can we, right? Given kind of a market. Um, given the, the last given one, the, yeah. given the, the narrative, you mean in the market? That's right. Yeah, man, I got, I got to think that, you know, Bitcoin reduces energy waste is, has got to emerge as a more dominant narrative as, as this, you know, as what we've, uh, discussed in this conversation becomes more apparent to people because that's, it seems to be such a service. Yeah. And I think it's been great that within ERCOT, which, you know, went through winter storm URI last year and there was um, rolling blackouts is that, you know, what's been great about ERCOT is, you know, mining has showed up there because of the economics of mining in the system and kind of the, the footprint of renewables there. And there's other reasons, but you know, the, um, the, the response from ERCOT, um, you know, Brad Jones is the interim CEO. And he's, he said before on CNBC that he's really glad for this tool that's in their system for kind of integrating this highly flexible load in the right locations that allows them to manage these intermittencies. So I'd, I'd say that, you know, this narrative is going to be helped by kind of what's happening in ERCOT and you know, the perception of saying, well, didn't this bad happen? But then you've got you know, the ambassador being kind of the CEO of uh, of the, the grid operator from ERCOT saying these resources are helpful and we need... Um, you know, we need resources like this to kind of manage higher levels of renewable. So I think that's going to really help with the narrative and also across other systems that they say, Hey, what did it do? Like, what, did, what was the outcome in those regions where Bitcoin mining was first and how have they been benefiting the grid? And it's now becoming, uh, there's, there's more data now that's showing kind of the behavior shifts that have happened on these miners and what they're doing for the grid. And I think that's going to mm-hmm. be really helpful. Um, yeah. And yeah, totally. All right. The second part of that question was, you know, Bitcoin's price ripping. How does that influence all these dynamics we've been discussing? Yeah. So I, I see like the, the value chain of, of, of mining is like, there's the manufacturers of miners. There's the, there's the hosting that own the actual kind of infrastructure, the, the plugs to plug in the, the miners. And then there's the operators, right. The, the, that are actually own the miners and are, are doing the hashing. Um, and so you think about like, if, if, Bitcoin price today went to a million dollars. Um, the break-even price for mining would be something around six thousand, right? So we'd go from one twenty to six thousand uh, per megawatt hour, right? And so, what's that going to do? Well, it's going to mean that, like, for the value chain of all the manufacturers, it's it's going to say like, where is the bottleneck in the value chain, right? And if the bottleneck is that there's not enough machines, right, because there's access to plugging them in. Well, then, you know, Bitmain's going to charge you, you know, half a million dollars a miner or whatever the economics works out to, right? Because they're going to, mm. you know, uh, profit seek on their equipment. Yep. They're going to jack up those prices. So the cost of hardware is all going to go through the roof, assuming that there's plugs, right? Now, let's <clears throat> take the example and say that there's the constraint is plugging miners in. So there hasn't been enough infrastructure built out of, you know, kind of new substations and transmission connected campuses that you can, you know, plug in large amounts of, of power because there's going to be a lot of miners wanting to plug in to capture this arbitrage between global and local power price. Um, so in that event, if the constraint is there's not enough plugs, well, people that are doing hosting agreements are going to charge more for the hosting because they know that the miners can collect a lot more because there's not a shortage of, of miners and the shortage is infrastructure, right? So mm-hmm. then, you know, I would guess that the hosting value would go up. 
And then if you have miners that have hosting agreements or they're mining at their own facility and they're, they're plugged in, you know, there's a great opportunity for them to actually you know, capture this spread or they could sell off to their, their, their assets to some other you know, company saying, hey, we're plugged in, we've got miners, why don't you, right. you know, buy here? Um, implications on the power system, right, would be that, you know, I talked about like the break-evens as we're going into summer is like there's $175 power price on average. And so the break-even right now is 120, which means that these loads are going to turn down and call it 50% of the time, right? That they're going to turn off because the price is above. Um, I mentioned that there's a big value discount when they, for that top 5% hours, if the break-even price is 6,000, you know, they're not going to turn down unless the price is, uh, uh, above 6,000. And in ERCOT, there's a cap of 5,000, right? Which means that they're going to operate around the clock all the time, right. which means that they can provide flexibility on these, you know, ancillary services, but they're not going to be price responsive, which is not necessarily a great thing. But, you know, a takeaway on this is it's not going to last a very long time because there's going to be a race for connecting more miners, bringing down this price. So either, you know, there's an increase of hash rate that needs to come online or that price corrects. But, you know, over this 10-year cycle of Bitcoin mining, you can see these you know, big price spread collapse, big price spread collapse, and it always has found a way of balancing. And so, you know, my view is, commodity prices always converge over the long run. You know, it could be one year, it could be five years, but they always fight to converge. And so, there'll be a fight to convergence, but there could be some short-term implications on, you know, where you turn down and what services you provide to a grid operator. I guess the question that comes to mind there is, for that reason, is it somewhat dangerous, or do they have to just be, you know, extremely considerate and find um, solutions? for generators that rely on um, Bitcoin mining as, or, or maybe even grids, as, as a mechanism for this cur curtailment, they have to be ready for a scenario where Bitcoin price rips and none of the miners are responsive to the price signal. And then that, you know, they may have built out capacity or, or in, built out an expectation that that's going to be a method of, of curtailment when <clears throat> in, mm -hmm. some, in certain cases it may not be. Would, do you yeah. see that being a problem or is that kind of easy to work around? Well. I kind of think about uh, somebody shared this example with me the other day. Is that like in <clears throat> in the seventies? Um, it's about self regulation, right? And in the seventies, is that um, you know there was there wasn't ratings on different movies, and you know there were some challenges on kind of like you know who's going to these different shows, and so the uh, the, the movie industry wanted to be kind of um, to self regulate, and so they came up with this rating system that would actually you know be the the PG, the rated R, and you know they wanted to self regulate so that they wouldn't have somebody else kind of setting here's what the requirement is, and so so they did that on their own. Um, and so what I've seen so far is that, you know, a lot of these miners are wanting to self-regulate and they're wanting to, you know, encourage kind of, um, rules that would be impacting kind of the, the operations. And the example is, is that, um, for load shedding is that there's, there's three types of, um, alerts for energy. There's, it's called an energy emergency alert. And there's three levels, level one, level two, level three. And level one is just a notice that we're getting really scarce on resources, uh, level two is that you're kind of telling kind of system operators that we're close to doing load shedding. And you know, the third is that we're doing load shedding. Like we're actually, because we have to balance that frequency. And so what you're seeing is like, you know, in the self-regulate side is that, you know, miners offering to say, hey, instead of having to curtail like other load that's not, you know, essentially uh, retail load or, uh, you know, essential loads is we'll go first, right? Because we, we want to be dispatched offline so that you're not curtailing others. Um, so in that event here is that, you know, the takeaway on this is that, you know, you're not taking away power that would have been used for residential power or for other use. And so you're proactively saying, hey, let's work with the grid operator to come up with ways that's going to, you know, benefit the grid, but also kind of help support, you know, kind of us being able to, you know, onboard into these new power systems. So seeing a lot of kind of offering self-regulation, 
in ERCOT, they've you know created this. Uh, uh, it's called a large flexible load task force, and you know, I can't say enough great things about ERCOT and kind of how they've been with you know onboarding these these large loads. And you know, instead of being a, a top-down approach of saying, "Okay, here's what we think, and here's what you got to do," it's it's been very bottom-up where they create a, a task force, and there's lots of miners that are on this large flexible load task force, you know, and giving inputs on the saying, you know, um, how should it be designed? How should you think about this? How can ERCOT still manage reliability? Lar- adding these large loads, but you know, it's been it's been fabulous to see just kind of like the, the interaction with ERCOT in these in these loads, but it's also these miners saying, you know, we want to be helpful to the grid, and how can we do so? Mm. That's very encouraging. Um, last couple here. What do you make of the current, you know, energy landscape? Uh, you know, obviously oil prices, uh, you know, extremely high right now, cost of energy high, lots of different reasons for this from money printing to war to, uh, you know, non-market uh, manipulations of and subsidies and taxes on different forms of energy and how that's kind of distorted, you know, the market's desire to find the right energy for the right price, all these things taken together. What do you make of the current situation? And then, you know, the, the, perhaps the last two, what haven't we discussed about, you know, Bitcoin mining and its implications in the energy industry and, you know, maybe what you're most uh, excited about and possibly most concerned about as well. Sure. So for the, for the energy landscape <clears throat> is that in 2008, um, oil prices, I think peaked at just under $150, right? And so we're, we're currently now at about $115 or $120. And, and you think about it and you say, well, we're, we're, we're cheaper than 2008. But if you do an inflation adjusted price for what does 120 mean, right? 120, sorry, what does 150 mean in today's dollars? And 150 in today's dollars means 220. Right. Mm-hmm. And so then, you know, the price of oil right now is 120 compared to the peak of 220 in, you know, uh, 2022 dollars for the 2008 peak. And so you step back and you say that that seems pretty cheap, right? Given that, you know, since 2008 versus now is that <clears throat> there's been a lot of shale oil that was discovered. Um, there was a, essentially a shale boom for natural gas as well. And if you think about the last 10 years is what we've seen is there's a lot of oil and gas companies that were chasing market share. Right? And so they're building out all these projects, going to the, the, their best wells first, and trying to capture that market share and, and there's low cost capital. Uh, and that didn't work out too well. Right? And they paid the price uh, and it was in their share price. And you can see a lot of these natural gas and oil companies for the last 10 years is very dismal. And then, you know, again, that label on their back is kind of fossil fuels and bad. Um, yeah. And so what's happened now is that you've got these prices that I arguably, I, I think are still cheap. Um, and you know you're seeing this price, but you're not seeing the response that's happening on new wells that coming out from oil and, and natural gas. And I think there's a few reasons. Uh, one is that there's uh, you've drilled your best wells, drilled your best wells. Um, inflation's happened. There's a higher cost of labor. There's a higher cost of kind of the infrastructure need to do this. Um, so essentially, and the cost of capital's increased. Labor's not there. And the big part is is that you know shareholders aren't happy with using this free cash flow that's coming off and saying, go do more of those wells. You know, they've been punished for the past 10 years. They want to get the returns back. Um, so we're kind of seeing that we're not seeing a massive uh, change in kind of production that's by these high prices. And so that tells me that the prices aren't high enough, right? That uh, because you're not getting behavioral changes. Um, mm. So I'd say kind of big picture and there's a lot of things going on and it's not just money printing, but it's just we're at a point where um, your cheap oil Peak cheap oil has kind of happened already, uh, and now you're kind of drilling into these other locations. And um, so, 
know, personal view is that uh, I think the prices, the fundamentals say that we're in tight supplies. The U.S. is kind of uh, pulling down on their strategic petroleum reserves, um, which are at lowest levels since this was created, I think, 10 years ago. And so, you know, um, I don't think there's many folks, you know, coming off COVID that are going to say that they're finally get to do a summer vacation. They're going to you know, change that. They're going to respond to price of, you know, high price uh, gas prices. They're going to say, I've been locked up for a couple of years. I'm going, <laughs> right? And so I think we're going to go into the summer period where you're not going to get behavioral changes as a result of price. It could change later on. So on path, I'm, I'm kind of bullish uh, on, on both the oil and gas prices. Um, how that relates to mining is that, you know, natural gas is the marginal generation, uh, power generation, power generation mag, megawatt. So if uh, a, a natural gas peaker plant, say it's a, a 10 heat rate plant, which means that it takes 10 units of natural gas to produce one megawatt of power. When the price of natural gas was $3, right? That meant that that, that 10 heat rate is $30 to produce power. Mm. Is As we go to say like $10 gas, well, that same 10 heat rate is now $100. So it means that your power prices are going up, right? Mm. And now you overlay that with the Bitcoin mining uh, break-evens is that there's a bit of a, um, uh, it's a call, is that we're going to be coming into this uh, area of a bear market. And I've heard a lot of narratives where folks would say that, you know, and if I see the Bitcoin mining hash rate drop off, I'll be concerned. But as long as the hash rate keeps growing, then I don't have concern. And what I'm sharing here is that um, <laughs> you can have this bear market you can have hash rate drop, but it wasn't to do with the Bitcoin network. It just means that the cost of mining is so high compared to this, you know, three to five X increase in power prices. So the last bear market we had in, in 2020, power prices were 35 bucks, right? And so if mining break-evens were, you know, hundred, there, there's no changes you're adding. You're still kind of incentivizing. But in this bear market, if we go into this really high price environment and power costs are easy math here is $200 and mining break-evens are hundred, you're going to see a response of hash rate drop off, right? Which is the right thing to do, right? Mm. But it might mm -hmm. scare folks and it might send signals of saying Bitcoin mining hash rates dropping off. Why is this the case? And so there could be other implications. This is just you know, speculating, but just um, I think there's a, a good chance that we see some type of hash rate change in the summer that's driven by this global uh, oil and gas landscape, energy landscape, and as it relates to, to mining economics. I think that was the first Makes part sense. of the question. <laughs> Yeah, that was the first. The other one was just, you know, based on everything that you're doing, this what we've been discussing, I'm sure there's parts we've left out necessarily, but, you know, what what gets you most excited about the work that you're doing and this emerging industry and landscape, you know, and, and again, the, 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 maybe as a counter to that, you know, what are you most concerned about or at least watching? Yeah, what's super exciting for me is just like, um, so being involved with a company that's making a difference in an energy transition Right. And so that is, you know, these flexible loads and Bitcoin mining is the, is the biggest use case right now. And so what gets me excited, um, one is to be part of that, right? Just cause that's, it's a lot of fun knowing the work you're doing is having a positive impact. Um, second on, on path and what I, I shared about, you know, kind of the oil and gas energy landscape is that, um, so in 2017, uh, I'll go back to this controllable load resource examples that, you know, was talked about in 2003, the career rule in 2013. Lansing was the first one to qualify in 2020. So in 2020, I think there was um, a few megawatts of controllable loads. In 2021, I think it was about 50. Uh, now there's a you know more than 100. And if I was a forecast a year out, I'm calling you know 400, 500. So like the the pace of growth is really starting to move now, right? And so like 
It's been in commercial application now for two years that we're now moving into summer and there's a lot of uh, heat and that's in the forecast for kind of summer across the United States. And so I think that, you know, we're going to get um, real data that's going to come out of what happens when there's mining integrating systems with high prices and how do they interact with the power grid. So I'm excited to get to the other end of summer that says, hey, these controllable loads were providing ancillary services at a lower cost and supply side resources for the whole summer for, for these products. And also were price responsive uh, for when these prices were here, they were coming offline. You can see the changes in, in the demand um, during these coincident peaks that occur from that June through September on the transmission, they were changing their behavior. So they're putting less strain on the system. So it's just now there's more and more of these facilities that are now getting bigger. That you're going to have real data that you can share and start to kind of you know, make white papers or something out of and saying, hey, look at this real application that happened in this market at scale mm -hmm. and where it's progressing. So that's where I'm really excited. We're now at that you know, tipping point of you know, um, controllable loads at scale and the benefits they're providing through Bitcoin mining. Um, on the kind of scared side or kind of worried side, um, I, I mentioned this before on, on uh, I think podcast with, with Peter is that like, if prices did go to like a million dollars overnight, so like, this is like the, the super, super, super tail risk, right? Like, cause, um, you know, I think we all pray <laughs> if that was the case, but <laughs> like, let's just put it in the category likely it, it's, it's super, super unlikely, right? Yeah, but just. Yeah if prices were just to kind of escalate to some level where, you know, what we've been sharing are kind of about the benefits of these types of resources would be partial, but it wouldn't be the whole story. Right. So again, like I mentioned about like to provide these capacity for backup reserves, you know, you just need to stay at the same kind of consumption level, but to be energy demand responsive, like uh, in real time, you, you know, like you're not going to respond to price if, if the price is above, you know, the cap of the, of the power systems. Um, so just kind of, yeah, it makes me kind of, the concern I would have is just, you know, these Bitcoin economics um, are, they're getting paid so much that they have no responsiveness in price. Uh, and then they kind of get a bad rap for saying, hey, you, you said you were going to be price responsive and look, you weren't. Um, but I right. think that's highly unlikely. Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited. You know, Bitcoin has this propensity because it's such a free market itself, because it's such an efficient market itself, operating 24 hours, et cetera that no matter what industry it kind of wades into, it brings that efficiency to it necessarily. You know, the more it becomes integrated, the more its efficiency is integrated into, you know, whatever market it's entering. So, you know, and I think generally speaking, that's a good thing. Transitions can be messy, but it will be, you know, I'm very interesting, interested to see how this all plays out in bringing, you know, perhaps more free or more efficient markets to, you know, the, the energy industry, because, and I'm such a noob with all this and I, you know, it's been awesome to speak with you and get some more insight into it, but you know, it seems like it could, like all industries use an, an efficiency upgrade and it, and it's, you know, I, at this point I'm maybe not super surprised, but it's, it always, um, I'm always interested to hear how this, you know, Bitcoin effect is bringing efficiency to, you know, another industry. And this one seems like it's going to be doing so in a very big and big way with a lot of positive implications. So uh, that's enough for me today to chew on. And I suspect everyone listening has uh, a bunch of stuff to chew on and follow up on. But uh, I really appreciate the time. Hopefully we can speak again, maybe in, in six to 12 months, because I suspect there will have been 
but we get that summer data and there'll probably be lots of changes throughout the course of that time as well. And it'd be great to, to get an update on your work and your perspective at, uh, at that time. So any last words before we shut it down anywhere you want to direct people to? Sure. Just uh, grateful for having me on the show. I appreciate it, John. Um, and if there's other folks out there doing Bitcoin mining that are interested in you know converting their their loads into controllable loads, you can drop by the Lantium website, uh, and there should be a way to kind of inquire about that. Um, and then for others, is that I'm on Twitter. Um, my profile is at uh, Sean Energy, so S H A U N Energy, and uh, and I post quite a bit of content. So you know, feel free to reach out to me on there, and my DMs are open. So appreciate you having me on. Awesome. The show. Awesome. Thanks so much for uh, the insights and the, the wealth of experience and, uh, you know, best of luck with Lancium and I'm sure we'll be speaking again in the future. Awesome. Thanks, John. Take care. I hope you guys enjoyed that discussion with Sean as much as I did. As I mentioned in the intro, we'll definitely have to get him back on in the future for an update on everything that's going on in the Bitcoin mining and energy industries. If you'd like to hear more from Sean, follow him on Twitter at Sean Energy and visit Lancium, L-A-N-C-I-U-M.com to learn more about the work he and the team are doing. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Closing the Loop, and we'll see you next time.